1: Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com
3: Miss of the Rally you're holding tonight. Is your party getting much support now?
4: Yes, uh, I have stacks of mail that has come in Uh, from across the country, and surprisingly, mostly at the student, college student level, expressing solid support uh, for a party in this country that will allow the black man, especially the young generation, to give vent to their own political feelings. And uh, they've all expressed support, and they've expressed a desire to become a part of all of our organizational efforts and our action programs.
3: Is the mail coming from both Negro and white?
4: Well, we have gotten mail from both black and white. Uh, the blacks can, uh, the blacks can, uh, both, uh, help and join, participate to any, in any way that they want. Uh, we don't let whites join us. Uh, we solicit their sympathy and their support, but they can't join us.
3: Is there any immediate step that you're going to be outlining?
4: Uh, well, it's not our intention to make our plans as such public. One of the things that has, uh castrated if i can use that word every move on the part of negroes in this country is they've let their plans become uh... too much public knowledge uh... if if any plan we have our plan that we will make public is we will
3: you be raising the educational level and cleaning up harlem
4: well the entire the only way to solve the problem that the so-called negroes in this country are confronted by is with a re-education program not a re-education program for whites but a re-education program for black people themselves to uh... eliminate the negative image that the that has been uh... through propaganda instilled within us of ourselves uh... since we've been in this country it'll take an an entirely new approach to restore uh... some kind of racial pride and racial dignity in the minds of the black people and once we have this pride and this dignity we can get the cohesiveness and the unity and harmony necessary uh... to solve our own problems here in the black community instead of instead of waiting for representatives of the white community to come uptown and solve these problems for us
3: are you going to be discussing anything else at the rally
4: we'll discuss many things
3: <laughs> uh, you had a long meeting today with Cassius Clay what did you discuss with him?
4: uh... i would uh, prefer not to mention uh, our discussion we are brothers uh, and we have much in common uh, if i I would say this Paul well, he's never been involved in any trouble his record is clean he's actually an all-American boy or an all African boy as you will and uh, the, an effort on the part of the press to attack him actually hurts America all over the world I've gotten letters from countries myself foreign countries. Uh, expressing uh, confidence and pride in the clean image that Cassius represents. And I think to attack him, especially on religious grounds, would be most destructive to America's image abroad.
3: Will, Will you be helping him try to overcome this WBA speculation?
4: I would not say. I have no comment. My advice always to Brother Cassius is that he never do anything that will in any way tarnish or take away from his image as the heavyweight champion of the world. Because I frankly believe that Cassius is in a better position than anyone else to restore the, uh, uh, a, a sense of uh, racial pride to not only our people in this country, but all over the world. And uh, he is trying his best to live a clean life and, and project a clean image but despite this you find the press is constantly trying to paint him as something other than what he actually is he doesn't smoke he doesn't drink uh... in fact if he had, if he was white, they would be referring to him as the all-american boy like they used to refer to jack armstrong we intend to make the philosophy of black nationalism a living reality among the so-called negroes in this country And in itself, this will give the so-called Negro the incentive to try and solve his own problems himself uh, instead of waiting around for someone else to solve these problems for us. We'll clean up Harlem instead of waiting for the man downtown to clean it up, and we'll straighten it up instead of waiting for the man downtown to straighten it. We'll make the level of the schools come come up to par with the level of schools in the suburbs instead of waiting for someone else to come and bus our children into other communities or bus other children into these communities. We feel that we can do these things ourselves if we don't run into a, a hostile press that will distort our image and our intention
0: to the public. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday september 2nd 2016 so i have been told this is our eighth study session on johnny smith and randy roberts blood brothers the fatal friendship between muhammad ali and malcolm x we are picking up chapter 15 we're kind of early in chapter 15 uh muhammad ali he is making the transition from cassius clay to Muhammad Ali touring the continent that's we're picking up at early in chapter 15 the audio segment that you heard in this very same period as Cassius Clay transitions to Muhammad Ali Minister Malcolm X transitioning out of the nation of Islam you heard the audio clip where he is explaining uh, his plan his agenda for what he's going to do now that he's no longer affiliated with the nation uh, and even some questions about his uh, relationship with Muhammad Ali. Without further ado, we will get started. Context of white supremacy, this is Blood Brothers. The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Audio segment number one.
2: About a week before Ali arrived in Accra, another famous black American checked into the Ambassador Hotel, igniting rumors that the champ had already arrived. While Malcolm X waited to meet his hosts, he sat in the dining room, overhearing conversations about the controversial ending to the previous evening's World Featherweight Championship match between Cuban Ultimino Sugar Ramos and Ghanaian Floyd Robertson. Perhaps people confused Malcolm with Ali because the Ghana Boxing Authority had announced that the heavyweight champion would attend the match, bringing greater attention to the first title bout ever held in Accra. But Ali did not arrive in Ghana until a week after the fight. Malcolm had had no idea that boxing was so popular in Africa and the Middle East until about a month earlier, when he arrived in Cairo. In Egypt, he was mistaken time and again for Cassius Clay. Talking to Egyptians, he learned that theaters across the country had shown Ali's fight against Liston, and popular newspapers like Al-Ahram had published pictures of them together in New York. Ali was so popular in The Muslim World, Malcolm wrote in his diary, That even the children know of him. When Ali defeated Liston and publicly embraced Islam, the young champion captured the imagination and the support of the entire dark world. Throughout his five week tour of the Middle East and Africa, Malcolm recorded his thoughts in a diary. His journal revealed that he still considered Ali his brother, even though many assumed that once Ali sided with Elijah, his brotherhood with Malcolm was over. In his mind, they remained on good terms. On April 20th, he wrote that Muslims in Saudi Arabia had mistaken him for Cassius Clay, but when they learned that I am his friend, many questions were asked about him. Malcolm quickly recognized that Ali was the most famous Muslim American in the world. In Egypt and Saudi Arabia, where most people spoke Arabic, Locals understanding of boxing and their recognition of Ali allowed Malcolm to communicate without speaking Muslim men women and children smiled when he proudly pointed at a picture of himself with Ali By sharing that picture and his stories about Ali Malcolm gained friends and credibility among Muslims abroad But Malcolm was not the same man that he was in the picture smiling with his friend while he hid his fears about a life outside the nation of Islam. By the time he reached Ghana, his thinking about race, religion, and politics had evolved. After making the pilgrimage to Mecca, he completed his break from Elijah Muhammad's brand of Islam. Years earlier, in 1959, he had traveled to Egypt and Saudi Arabia as Elijah's emissary. During that trip, he witnessed Orthodox Muslims of various races praying together, and practicing rituals that conflicted with the messenger's teaching. Although Elijah taught his followers that Islam was the black man's religion and that whites were devils, Malcolm had seen for himself that members of the Ummah could belong to any nationality or race, as long as they performed the five pillars and observed other traditions. At that time, he had avoided making the pilgrimage to Mecca because his devotion to Elijah made him not want to go there ahead of him. For years, he suppressed the truth about Elijah's faith, denying the contradictions between the messenger's parochialism and the practices he encountered in Saudi Arabia. But when he completed the Hajj in 1964, he finally accepted that Elijah's orthodoxy was incompatible with the Quran. The Hajj broadened his understanding of Islam, and opened him to the possibility that blacks and whites could live together peacefully. When an Arab asked him what impressed him most about his experience, he answered, The Brotherhood! The people of all races, colors, from all over the world, coming together as one. It has proved to me the power of the one God. Visiting the holy city inspired him to write letters to American friends describing his spiritual transformation. During his holy pilgrimage, he ate from the same plate, drank from the same cup, slept on the same cot, and prayed on the same rug with white Muslims. For the first time in his life, he did not see these men as white because they did not identify themselves as whites did in America. He knew that when his letter to the New York Times reached American readers, they would be stunned to learn that he now professed that Islam had cleansed him of his belief that all whites were devils. Yet he continued to rail against white Americans. The American white man was still his enemy. He could not absolve them of their sins against blacks. There was too much blood on their hands. Malcolm's belief that whites were not inherently evil developed gradually. But this realization did not alter his political ideology. At his core, Malcolm was a black nationalist, a soldier at war, searching for allies in the Black Liberation Movement. In Ghana, he hoped to find solidarity with black expatriates and state officials. As the fountainhead of Pan-Africanism, Ghana had long served as a haven for expatriates like W.E.B. Du Bois, Richard Wright, and Julian Mayfield. After Malcolm spent a night at the Ambassador Hotel, Mayfield, Leslie Lacey, Maya Angelou, Alice Wyndham, and other exiles welcomed him home. As editor-in-chief of the African Review and one of Nkrumah's advisors, Mayfield offered the kinds of connections that Malcolm needed to build diplomatic ties with African leaders. At Mayfield's home, 30 to 40 guests huddled around Malcolm as he described how the Hajj had changed him. He said that he was still a Muslim but would no longer follow Elijah Muhammad and that he intended to help unify the various rights groups in America. Maya Angelou could not believe that this was the same Malcolm who had served as the bombastic spokesman for Elijah Muhammad, preaching about the white man's doom. The man sitting in Mayfield's living room smiled easily, exuding a warmth and friendliness that she had never felt before in his presence. Freed from Elijah, Malcolm radiated a renewed energy, grinning and rubbing his sandy beard as he spoke about his new outlook. Malcolm toured Accra with his camera, snapping pictures like a tourist. He absorbed the sights, sounds, and smells of the city. Immersed in Ghanaian culture, he spoke to street vendors, students, and intellectuals. He gave interviews, delivered university lectures, and attended lunches and dinners with government officials and ambassadors from various countries. Before he arrived in Ghana, malcolm had determined that he would expose the hypocrisy of white americans who claimed that they supported africa he bristled at the sight of whites who spit in the faces of blacks back home but are seen throughout africa bowing grinning and smiling in an effort to integrate with africans charging the united states as the master of imperialism he urged african leaders to take a strong stand against the american government for violating blacks' human rights. Many Ghanians praised Malcolm for questioning the State Department's claims about racial progress in America. His message echoed throughout Africa at a time when the United States image abroad suffered from civil rights protests. As the movement escalated during the early 1960s, international news coverage of brutal discrimination against blacks took on increased significance as the United States and the Soviet Union fought over the alignment of African countries. Appealing to African leaders, the United States promoted a narrative of colorblind democracy in America, while international correspondents and photographers told a different story. In the aftermath of the Birmingham crisis, images of police dogs and fire hoses unleashed on black children were published across Africa. In Accra, The U.S. Embassy reported that the American government took a heavy beating in Ghana over Birmingham. And after the march on Washington, a small group of Ghanaian protesters demonstrated outside the American embassy, carrying placards that read, America, Africa is watching you. In the mid-1950s, Kwame Nkrumah was celebrated as a symbol of hope throughout the continent. Since 1957, When Ghana became the first sub-Saharan state to gain independence from colonial rule, Nkrumah's promise of democracy had gradually deteriorated into an authoritarian regime plagued by rigged elections, mass arrests, new taxes, and prison sentences for criticizing the government. Yet, during the Kennedy administration, the United States courted Nkrumah, hoping that the president's charisma would persuade him to ignore the Soviet Union's overtures. But Nkrumah's mercurial personality made him unpredictable. Dependent on foreign investment, the Ghanaian government exploited the superpowers for financial aid. Still, Nkrumah harbored fears that the CIA, acting independently of the American government, was out to get him, a fear exacerbated by two assassination attempts against him. He also suspected that some black expatriates were working as foreign agents. In February 1964, about a month after Nkrumah survived a second attempt on his life, 200 workers from his Convention People's Party staged a protest outside the American embassy, shouting, Yankees go home. A few days later, protesters lowered the American flag in front of the embassy. The state's official newspaper, the Ghanaian Times, accused the U.S. of plotting against Nkrumah because he is the biggest thorn in their neo-colonialist ambitions and because he is forging the path of socialism. In response, Under Secretary of State W. Averill Harriman warned Nkrumah that if his government continued to criticize America, the United States would suspend funding for the Volta River Hydroelectric Dam Project, the centerpiece of Ghana's industrialization. By the time Malcolm and Ali arrived in May, Nkrumah had expressed regret over the embassy protests, instructing all government media to cease disseminating anti-American propaganda. After Malcolm reached Accra, he asked Mayfield if he could arrange a meeting with the president. But the Ghanaian leader hesitated after U.S. Ambassador William Mahoney warned him that Malcolm's inflammatory rhetoric might damage the goodwill between their countries. Nkrumah made sure that as long as Malcolm, and Ali for that matter, were in Ghana, neither man would jeopardize his relationship with the United States. In Accra, American diplomats reported, anti-American statements by Malcolm X, militant former black Muslim leader, and Cassius Clay, had received little attention in the press. Nkrumah well understood the risks of engaging Malcolm. Having met him at a Harlem rally in 1960, he was aware of the minister's provocative image. Only after W.E.B. Du Bois's widow, Shirley, appealed to Nkrumah on Malcolm's behalf, did he consent to a private meeting at the Christiansborg Castle, an old slave fort. On May 15th, at about noon, Julian Mayfield dropped Malcolm off outside the castle. After guards patted Malcolm down, Nkrumah, a slight man, rose from behind his large office desk, offering a firm handshake and a warm smile. For about an hour they sat on a couch discussing the plight of black Americans and the importance of Pan-Africanism. If Malcolm asked Nkrumah to support a U.N. resolution charging the United States with human rights violations, he left disappointed. The Ghanaian leader may have sympathized with his cause, but politics prevented him from considering such a proposal. Initially, the State Department viewed Malcolm's journey abroad as a threat to American foreign policy. If he'd convinced just one African nation to charge the U.S. with human rights violations, he could have damaged America's international reputation. In the end, though, the State Department concluded that Malcolm lacked political leverage with the officials he met. He had nothing tangible to offer. No bridges, no dams, no money. The fact that he did not receive an official endorsement from Nkrumah minimized his impact. All in all, American officials surmised, Malcolm X created less of a stir than the embassy feared. Yet Malcolm's experience in Ghana deepened his commitment to Pan-Africanism. Talking with Africans who expressed a sincere interest in the struggle of African Americans convinced him that they all shared a common struggle against racial oppression he left Ghana, inspired. If there was a single lesson that he learned, it was that our problems were their problems. We are all one people, Africans or of African descent. We are all blood brothers. Malcolm had packed his bags. Before flying back to New York, he planned four more days of traveling in Senegal, Morocco, and Algiers. On Sunday morning, May 17th, Maya Angelou, Alice Wyndham, and Julian Mayfield met him in front of the Ambassador Hotel. They were all laughing and talking about their time together when suddenly they heard loud American voices. One voice sounded especially familiar to Malcolm. He turned around and saw the handsome face of Muhammad Ali. The next moment froze, Angelou recalled, as if caught on daguerreotype and the next minutes moved as a slow montage. Malcolm brightened at the sight of him. "'Brother Mohammed, Brother Mohammed. he shouted with a crooked smile, uncertain how Ali would react with everyone watching. At that instant, Ali had to make a split-second decision. He knew that he could not publicly embrace Malcolm, not as long as Herbert stood next to him, not as long as he had professed his loyalty to Elijah. Malcolm had betrayed the messenger and the entire nation, and no true Muslim could maintain a friendship with him. Ali paused in the middle of his conversation, looking quizzically at Malcolm, who appeared almost unrecognizable, sporting a reddish goatee, white robe, and sandals. At first, Ali said nothing. He just kept walking, slowly moving away from his friend, leaving him behind, like an old suitcase— heavy baggage he no longer wished to carry. When he and his entourage reached a row of parked cars, Malcolm rushed up to him, hoping to flag him down before he drove away. Brother Muhammad! Brother Muhammad! Finally, Ali stopped and faced Malcolm. Brother, I still love you, and you are still the greatest, Malcolm said. Glaring, Ali shook his head. You left the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, he said, his voice as cold as his eyes. That was the wrong thing to do, Brother Malcolm. Malcolm wanted to explain that he did not leave Elijah, he was forced out of the nation. But there was no time to explain, no way to make Ali understand that he never intended to hurt him or Elijah. Ali abruptly marched away, leaving him puzzled and wounded. Malcolm had never expected his friend to treat him so harshly, not after he had shown him how much he cared for him, standing by his side in Miami when the whole world was against him, when Elijah refused to publicly claim him as one of his own. Malcolm did not have the words to convince Ali that they could remain friends. All he could do was sadly watch him walk out of his life. Visibly shaken, Malcolm rejoined his friends, Walking with his head down, his shoulders slumped. I've lost a lot. A lot, he repeated. Almost too much. Then, saying nothing else, he crammed his long legs into the front passenger seat of Maya's tiny Fiat, the heavy mood destined to stay. Ali's encounter with Malcolm convinced him that everything he had heard about his old friend was true. Malcolm had gone mad, the black muslim said and now ali had no doubt that they were right man did you get a look at him he asked herbert dressed in that funny white robe and wearing a beard and walking with that cane that looked like a prophet stick man he's gone he's gone so far out he's out completely ali did not understand that malcolm like other penitents who had completed the hajj wore traditional muslim attire "'Doesn't that just go to show, Herbert, that Elijah is the most powerful? "'Nobody listens to that Malcolm any more.' "'If Ali hardly recognized him, Malcolm perceived that Ali had changed, too. "'He could see that the boxer was no longer the sweet, affable young man "'who had once bounced Malcolm's daughters on his knee. "'This man, Muhammad Ali, was Elijah's loyal subject, "'wearing a new mask playing the part of the serious, vindictive black Muslim. When Ali cut Malcolm out of his life, he revealed a new side of himself that the public had not yet seen, an angrier, crueler side that would develop more and more in the coming years. Whenever there were other black Muslims around, he assumed this role, conforming to the expectations of the nation, punishing anyone who crossed them, whether it was his father, Floyd Patterson, or Malcolm X. Yet, after their confrontation, Malcolm could not help but try to protect Ali. Before he departed Accra, he sent Ali a telegram, offering brotherly advice as he always did, reminding him of his immense cultural power. Because a billion of our people in Africa, Arabia, and Asia love you blindly, you must now be forever aware of your tremendous responsibilities to them. You must never say or do anything that will permit your enemies to distort the beautiful image you have here among our people. When he made a vague reference to Ali's enemies, he was really referring to his own adversaries in the nation of Islam, those who would exploit Ali, use him up, and discard him when he was no longer valuable, just as they did to Malcolm. Ali moved on as if he had never seen Malcolm. He performed his usual shtick, making outrageous pronouncements and entertaining strangers. When a local man asked him why he was going to visit Egypt, he answered that he intended to find his future wife there. Actually, he was going to get four wives and bring them back home, where he would build a castle. One of his wives, Abigail, would feed him grapes. Another wife, Susie, would rub olive oil all over his beautiful muscles while Cecilia shined his shoes. He was not sure what his fourth wife, Peaches, would do. Perhaps she would entertain him, singing or dancing. It was all part of his fantasy of being worshipped, being loved, being king of the world. Mesmerized by the crowds of ordinary men and women who followed him at every stop, Ali fell in love with Africa. He toured Ghana like a politician courting voters. Whenever he met government authorities, state boxing officials, or casual fans, he made sure that he won them over with his charm, endlessly praising Ghana, hugging women, and kissing babies. He claimed that he wanted to build a home and a gym in Accra, so that he could train among his people. Until I came to Ghana, I never realized that I was so popular and loved by Africans. My people, he said. "'I am so overwhelmed and fascinated, "'and I feel it is my obligation "'to arrange for my next championship fight "'to be staged in Accra.' "'This was one of many empty promises "'he uttered during his visit. "'He never intended to defend his title in Ghana, "'let alone move there. "'In fact, he would not return to Africa "'until a decade later. "'Soon, Kwame Nkrumah invited Ali "'to Ghana's presidential palace.' Draped in a striped orange and blue kenti cloth, Ali towered over the tiny president as they toured the Flagstaff House. Nkrumah, dressed in his signature khaki pants and open-necked shirt, a modern look befitting a man who aspired to lead Africa into the modern age, presented Ali with his two books, both promoting African nationalism. They visited for a short time, just long enough for the state's photographers to snap pictures for the next day's newspapers. Ali told reporters that he was honored to meet Nkrumah, which translated into the headline, Muhammad Ali Meets His Hero. The press exaggerated his reverence for Nkrumah, a propaganda ploy advancing the Ghanaian leader's agenda. Just as he did for Elijah Muhammad, Ali followed Nkrumah's party line. When they met, he said, I humbled myself before him, a thing I rarely do, because I saw in him a dedicated man who is anxious to free Africa and bring about unity. On May 18th, the same day he visited Nkrumah, Ali met with Ambassador William Mahoney at the U.S. Embassy. Less than four months after protesters demonstrated outside the embassy, the State Department feared that Ali might inflame anti-American rhetoric. Consequently, the United States Information Agency, the government's foreign affairs propaganda machine, did not publicize his tour. Even before his meeting with Mahoney, Ali understood the political implications of his trip. Many Negro celebrities, he said, take State Department goodwill tours of Africa or Asia, but few have received the personal congratulations and invitations from so many world leaders. Promoting black athletes as symbols of American democracy, the State Department figured that famous stars like Rafer Johnson, Bill Russell, and Floyd Patterson could counter anti-American views among Africans. Yet, Ali rejected the role of the State Department's goodwill ambassador. As an independent guest of the Ghanaian government, he assumed no responsibility for the embassy's agenda. During a press conference— He criticized the NAACP and derided the Civil Rights Act as a deceptive attempt to convince blacks that integration would work. The law, he charged, won't change the hearts of the slave masters. And like the counterfeit money it is, if the Negroes tried to spend it, they would be arrested. Four years before, as an Olympic champion in Rome, he had defended America. Now, he abandoned the government's official line. Emerging as a potent international symbol of anti-American defiance, he described America as a violent country where blacks who demanded freedom were getting killed and children were being bombed in churches. History showed, he said, that whites and blacks could not get along because the so-called master doesn't want his slave to be his equal. This is America. On Friday, May 22, Ali flew by private plane to Kumasi, Ghana's garden city, where more than 5,000 people greeted him. Rivaling his welcome in Accra, locals filled the streets as his caravan meandered downtown, paralyzing traffic. Sitting atop a convertible, Ali, perspiring beneath his white shirt and loosened dark tie, led the crowd in his usual call-and-response routine. Shopkeepers, clerks, and merchants left their jobs just to see the famous American champion. Teenagers climbed trees, scrambling for a better view, while others rode bicycles alongside his car. For them, Ali was a symbol of black pride. By returning to Africa, a Daily Graphic columnist wrote, he has fulfilled a long-cherished mission which the other great Afro-American champions left unaccomplished. Ali, another writer explained, is a real specimen of the African. He thinks anything the white man can do, the African can do better. At Kumasi Sports Stadium, thousands of fans watched him spar with his brother, raising money for the Kwame Nkrumah Trust Fund, a charitable organization. Throwing very few punches against Rahman, he mostly stalked his brother around the ring and chased the referee. Near the end of the match, he feigned grogginess, then fell to the canvas, stunning the crowd. Bouncing back to his feet, the crowd roared with applause. Assuring his fans, he said, If we had been really fighting, I would have won in one. After spending three weeks in Ghana, on June 1st, Ali traveled to Lagos, Nigeria. For hours, a few thousand fans waited at the Lagos International Airport holding signs that read, Welcome back home, Muhammad Ali, King of the World. Reporters, photographers, and government officials greeted the champ while Fan shouted his name, convincing him that he really was the most popular man in the world. A crowd swarmed his car, pressing against it as they reached out to touch him. They love me. They love me, he kept repeating. The ebullient mood was short-lived. Many local newsmen disapproved of his egotism, listening to him deride Joe Lewis and Floyd Patterson for not being true world champions willing to travel everywhere, like me. Making matters worse, Ali angered his hosts from the National Sports Council when he informed them that he could not stay more than three days. The council had expected him to visit for a week and perform two boxing exhibitions, just as he had in Ghana. Stunned by Ali's sudden change of plans, the officials could not understand why he had reneged on their agreement. A day after he arrived, he visited the American embassy, where he explained to his hosts that he already had plans to travel to Egypt. They got big things planned for me in Cairo. Nasser is going to see me, and it's going to be really big. The only plane to Cairo this week leaves on Wednesday, so I gotta go. His hosts protested reminding him that thousands of Nigerian fans were counting on him. But he insisted that Egypt was more important than Nigeria. Outraged, Hogan Kid Bassey, former world bantamweight champion and Olympic boxing coach, scolded Ali. Egypt, he said, was not more important than Nigeria. Gripping the arms of his chair, he explained that Nigeria was the biggest country in Africa— in fact, one in five Africans lived in Nigeria. Of course, every Nigerian schoolboy knew that, but Ali didn't. Well, Ali replied, isn't Egypt the powerfulest country, with all them rockets and their big army and their dam? Mr. Muhammad, Bassi exclaimed, you are a champion. You are supposed to keep your promises. We scheduled an exhibition in Ibadan. Thousands have bought tickets to see you. "'We organized a soccer game, especially in your honor. "'We invited important officials to banquets. "'You were picked to judge the Miss Nigeria contest Saturday.' "'His voice rising, Bessie fumed. "'If you leave us now, you'll mess everything up.' "'At that point, Bassi and Ali were no longer just talking. "'Now they were sparring with words, "'and Ali was determined to prove that he was the better fighter. "'Now look,' he said, "'Pointing his finger at Bassey, "'I don't appreciate anybody telling me to do this or do that. "'Nobody tells me what to do or when to do it but me.' "'Herbert Mohammed tried to calm everyone down. "'Ali stood up and shook hands with his hosts, "'but the tension remained. "'Afterward, they packed into cars "'so that Ali would not be late for a radio interview. "'But along the way he ordered the driver to stop the car "'so that he could buy a record player.' Infuriated, Bassey vented. That clown! He wants to go shopping? He calls himself a champion? Critics lambasted his treatment of Nigeria as a disgrace. Boston Globe columnist Bud Collins suggested that Ali's diplomatic blunder might damage America's reputation in Africa. Ali had insulted Sonny Liston and got away with it. So why should thirty-six million Nigerians concern him? Yet, a Nigerian writer defended Ali, suggesting that any criticism of his early departure was unfair. The Daily Times' C.K. blamed his short stay on the National Sports Council for poorly planning the boxer's visit after he had already arranged his trip to Egypt. Comparing the heavyweight champion to a foreign minister, the columnist argued that Ali deserved better treatment. Apart from being a world champion, he wrote, Muhammad Ali is our own brother— He is even more than that. He is an ambassador of his country, and that is one more reason why he should be given VIP treatment. For months, Egyptians had anticipated Ali's arrival. Immediately after he defeated Sonny Liston and announced that he practiced Islam, Egypt's Supreme Islamic Council invited him to visit the United Arab Republic. His religious declaration had thrust him into the international spotlight, Yet American diplomats feared that if Ali accepted the invitation, he might embarrass the United States. Equally troubling to officials, the Arab press made no distinction between Orthodox Muslims and the black Muslims, giving Ali and the NOI undeserved credit and status throughout the Middle East. In advance of his visit, the State Department attempted to diminish Ali's appeal by planting articles in newspapers and magazines that exposed the true nature of black Muslims, making it clear that the sect was not genuinely Islamic. On June third, Ali finally reached Cairo International Airport, where an eager crowd nearly crushed him as he made his way through a terminal. Scores of policemen, soldiers, and ex-boxers struggled against the people enveloping the champ. Looking at the crowd of nearly 2,000 people and placards reading, ''Victory to Islam'' Ali realized that these people loved him not only for his boxing talents, but also because he was a Muslim. "'I'm fighting for Allah,' he declared. "'I'm proud to be a Muslim and among you. "'I feel at home.'" In Cairo, Ali showed far greater respect for his hosts than he had in Nigeria. Elijah Muhammad had taught him that the Asiatic black man had descended from the rich Nile Valley region— and that ancient Egypt was once the most powerful black nation in history. Perceiving Egyptian superiority, Ali viewed his surroundings as evidence that he had reached the most advanced Muslim country in the world. From his balcony at the Nile Hilton, a gleaming 12-story white slab replete with modern amenities and air conditioning, a panoramic historic vista met his gaze overlooking the western bank of the majestic river in the distance he saw the citadel ancient mosques and the pyramids surrounded by desert looking eastward he glimpsed Tahrir square cairo's commercial district in his reverence for egyptian history and culture he adopted a more dignified countenance befitting a distinguished muslim studying his performance charles howard observed Muhammad Ali is not only a boxer, he's an actor. During his 20-day tour of Egypt, Ali met the Supreme Islamic Council, watched a boxing tournament at an athletic club, visited monuments, museums, and the Aswan Dam, and performed a few boxing exhibitions. Outside Cairo, near the pyramids of Giza, he straddled a stubborn camel, tightly pulling the reins when the ornery bull bucked. He confidently waved off the camel's owner and steadily gained control. I'm the champ, he announced with a grin, and I can tame a camel just like I handled Sonny Liston. While some locals laughed at his boasts, others resented his jocular behavior. A real king, a Kyrene suggested, would not say he is king of the world about himself. He'd leave it for others to say it about him. Egyptians also wondered if Ali really understood how to perform traditional Muslim rituals. At the al Hussein mosque, he and his brother prayed barefoot on a carpet among 1,500 worshipers. Afterward, Ali was so moved by his experience that he announced he would make the pilgrimage to Mecca before returning home, though he never reached the holy city. He also claimed that he wanted to learn Arabic, train Egyptian boxers, marry an Egyptian woman, and live near the great pyramids. Watching him pray during what seemed like inappropriate moments, with his palms facing the sky, shouting, Allahu Akbar, left some locals questioning his sincerity. Near the end of his stay, he met Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser. A passionate boxing fan, Nasser told Ali that he had watched his victory over Liston. Afterward, Ali said they talked for nearly 40 minutes about life, boxing, different things, seemingly harmless topics. But given Nasser's friendly relationship with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, State Department officials must have cringed when Ali told a reporter that everything he had read about Nasser in the United States was nothing but lies. It is a shame how they tell lies about great people like Nasser." While the State Department considered whether Ali might make more provocative statements, they soon realized that they no longer had to worry. After five weeks of traveling, he abruptly canceled the final leg of his trip. I'm tired, he said to a group of reporters at Kennedy International Airport. People have been mobbing me. They've been killing me. Women and children were jumping off roofs, and people were coming straight out of the mountains to see me. But Ali wasn't embellishing when he said, I was treated like a politician. In Africa, he discovered a whole new world, one where people respected him as a black man and as a Muslim. His experience transformed him into a global icon, an international symbol of black power and anti-colonialism. Reflecting on his journey, he realized that his worldwide celebrity came with tremendous responsibility. "'Sometimes it scares me, all this fame. "'The world watches me. "'Little children know me. "'Old ladies,' he said. "'Gotta set an example of good living. "'Everybody knows me.' "'He could easily close his eyes "'and imagine all the black faces smiling at him, "'chanting his name. "'You should have seen em, pour out of the hills, "'the villages of Africa, and they all knew me. "'Everybody knows me.' in the whole world. Chapter 16 The Muslim Champ This hypocrite is going to get blasted clear off the face of the earth. Elijah Muhammad on Malcolm X. Talmadge Hayer was the perfect man for the job. He had lived a life of dreams deferred, with festering sores that never healed. He came of age in the slums of Patterson, New Jersey, a depressed and broken city. By the 1960s, the Silk City had frayed into a bad land of poverty, crime, and urban decay. Walking the streets of Patterson, Hayer could see the crumbs of civilization all around him. Broken glass scattered on the sidewalks, garbage-strewn alleys, the burned-out shell of a tenement— abandoned red-brick buildings that were once filled with noisy looms, hustlers loitering on corners, and the vacant stairs of old men sitting on stoops, passing time, until they had no more time to pass. He recalled later that in his early twenties, his life started coming apart. He committed petty crimes, and eventually was arrested for disorderly conduct and possession of stolen firearms. Some of his friends who were convicted of more serious crimes went to prison and came out as converted followers of Elijah Muhammad. Curious about their transformations, he began reading about the Nation of Islam. Soon, he became a regular at Mosque Number 25 in Newark. Transfixed by the rugged, uniformed soldiers standing in military formation, Hayer decided what he really wanted to be—a soldier in the fruit of Islam. Had their own army, man, he said years later. I thought we were going to fight this white, blue-eyed devil. After receiving his ex in the fall of 1962, he embraced his role as a soldier in Elijah Muhammad's army. But on one occasion, when a fellow brother violated Muslim law, Talmadge X zealously took matters into his own hands, violently punishing the man. Consequently, mosque officials suspended him. In exile, he realized that he had to do something to regain their trust and prove his loyalty to the cause. By the spring of 1964, Talmadge had returned to the nation in good standing. In April, he unfolded the pages of Muhammad Speaks and found a provocative cartoon of Malcolm's decapitated head replete with satanic horns bouncing toward a pile of skulls that belonged to the worst traitors in history. Talmadge read the cartoon clearly. This was a test, he realized, a challenge to the fruit, to eliminate the renegade minister, who had betrayed the messenger. On an early June afternoon, while Talmadge strolled through downtown Patterson, a black Chrysler rolled up alongside him. He recognized two young Muslim brothers from Mosque No. 25. After Ben X and Leon X opened a back door, Talmadge got in the men began talking about how Malcolm had slandered the messenger. Cautiously, they probed Talmadge for his attitudes about Malcolm and Muhammad. Talmadge told the men that Malcolm must be silenced. Nodding with approval, Ben and Leon had no doubt that he was committed to retaliation. When they mentioned killing Malcolm, Talmadge listened intently, assuming that Ben, an assistant secretary, was acting on orders from Minister James Shabazz. A good soldier, he acknowledged, followed orders, and he had a duty to carry out the mission. Soon, they began meeting at Ben's home, plotting Malcolm's death. According to Talmadge, Ben recruited two other men that he knew as Wilbur X and William X. Since Talmadge was familiar with guns, Ben charged him with acquiring the weapons they needed. He dutifully purchased a 12-gauge shotgun, a Luger, and a forty five automatic. "'I didn't ask a whole lot of questions "'as to who's giving us instructions "'and who's telling us what,' he said later. "'We just knew what had to be done.' "'A few weeks before Ben and Leon "'approached Talmadge on May 21st, "'Malcolm returned home "'after traveling for more than a month. "'Around 4.30 p.m., Betty, the kids, "'and a few of his lieutenants "'greeted him at Kennedy Airport. "'Following a brief respite at home,' A few minutes before 7 p.m., Malcolm entered the Hotel Teresa's 11th-floor Skyline Ballroom wearing a blue seersucker suit and a broad smile. Reporters hardly recognized the man with the reddish goatee. Some had heard that he was now using his Sunni Muslim name, el Haj Malik El-Shabazz, but before he stepped to the podium, one of his assistants introduced him as Minister Malcolm. When a writer asked him if Shabazz would replace his ex, he replied with a grin, I'll probably continue to use Malcolm X as long as the situation that produced it exists. More than 50 photographers, newswriters, and television reporters had crowded into the ballroom. After describing his journey, Malcolm announced his intention to work with African leaders who would support his charges against the United States for violating black Americans' human rights. Immediately, A writer asked him the one question everyone wanted him to answer. Do we correctly understand that you now do not think that all whites are evil? True, sir. My trip to Mecca has opened my eyes. I no longer subscribe to racism. I have adjusted my thinking to the point where I believe that whites are human beings, he said, pausing contemplatively, as long as this is borne out by their humane attitude toward Negroes. He added that, although he had seen Muslims of different races living in harmony in the Middle East, he remained unconvinced that such interracial brotherhood would ever exist in America. When another writer inquired if he planned to cooperate with civil rights groups, Malcolm replied that he wanted to develop a united front with other organizations and that he was willing to meet various leaders. Sitting next to Alex Haley, the New York Times' Mike Handler could not believe what he was hearing. "'Incredible! Incredible!' he kept muttering. Malcolm's willingness to work with civil rights leaders led many writers to conclude that his trip had fundamentally changed his political views. Some of his own followers, hearing him concede that he no longer considered all whites to be devils, began wondering if the minister sporting a reddish beard was an imposter. In private meetings, a few men challenged him, and sometimes the disagreements became physical I had to hold some brothers off Malcolm, his aide Charles Kenyatta said later. While Malcolm's perspective had changed, becoming more internationalist, he still identified himself as a minister and a teacher, a Muslim and a revolutionary. Most importantly, he still considered himself a proud black man. In the days after his return, Malcolm found himself trapped between his past and his future, struggling to convey his new position as an alternative to the status quo if he deviated too far from his previous rhetoric looking for reproachment with white liberals he risked losing his most loyal followers but if he failed to broaden his thinking inviting alliances with those he had condemned in the past then he could not build the unified movement that he envisioned malcolm was now convinced that brotherhood between blacks mattered more than ideology if a black man was willing to fight alongside him, risking his life for freedom, then that man was his brother. When fellow activists pressed him about his position, he maintained that whites were still the enemy of black Americans, and that he fully intended to fight that enemy. On May twenty third, during a debate with Louis Lomax at the Civic Opera House in Chicago, he explained that traveling abroad had helped him discover a wider perspective. "'Separation is not the goal of the Afro-American,' he told the moderator, Irv Kupcinet. "'Nor is integration his goal. "'They are merely methods toward his real end, "'respect and recognition as a human being.' While Malcolm debated Lomax, he looked out at the audience and noticed John Ali and a squad from the fruit glaring at him. It was the beginning of an emerging pattern. The moment Malcolm returned home, The black Muslims escalated threats against him, appearing everywhere he went—lecture halls, radio stations, airports, even his home. In Chicago, Raymond Sharif had ordered the fruit to get Malcolm. In early June, the Supreme Captain visited Mosque No. 7, where he delivered a harangue against the hypocrite, demanding vengeance. Make no mistake, he said, Malcolm will soon die out. Malcolm could sense his enemies closing in on him. Walking the streets at night, his eyes darted in every direction while he listened for footsteps. He could imagine a squad from the fruit sneaking up behind him. The black Muslims, Peter Goldman wrote, had crowded him into a corner and so had brought him to his most dangerous condition, that reckless, free-swinging, gut-punching fury in which he would use whatever weapon came to hand. His most potent weapon against the Muslims, of course, was evidence that Elijah Muhammad had carried on numerous affairs, impregnating several of his secretaries. He began retaliating by sending his chief aide, James 67X, to California to obtain signed legal documents from women who claimed that Elijah had fathered their children. Then he began working the phones, calling other women who could corroborate the former secretary's charges. Malcolm knew that once he pursued this course, his chances of survival deteriorated. Muhammad would stop at nothing to protect his secrets. The FBI overheard Malcolm say on the phone, Any man who will go to bed with his brother's daughter and then turn around and make five other women pregnant and then accuse all these women of committing adultery is a ruthless man. On the evening of June 7th, at the Audubon Ballroom, Malcolm told nearly five hundred people that Elijah kept several concubines and was the father of six illegitimate children. This was the first time that he spoke publicly about Elijah's adultery, a move as wise as swinging a broom at a hornet's nest. The nation's officials, he declared, would even murder to keep it quiet. Later that night, across Harlem, the black Muslims mobilized, preparing for war. The following morning, Betty received the first of many threatening phone calls. Sometimes, her tormentors dialed and hung up. Sometimes, they said nothing while she pleaded for them to stop calling. And sometimes, they threatened her children. But this time, a man told her to deliver a message to her husband. Just tell him. He's as good as dead. Malcolm got the message. Later that day, he appeared on CBS with Mike Wallace, divulging Elijah's improprieties. Muhammad forced him out of the Nation of Islam, he charged, because when he learned about Muhammad's indiscretions, he told other officials, who then made it look as if he was stirring up things. Wallace asked him if he feared the consequences of exposing Elijah's trysts. Oh, yes, he answered. I'm probably a dead man already. No matter how much the black Muslims threatened him, Malcolm refused to back down. On Friday, June 12th, he arrived in Boston under police escort. An anonymous caller warned a radio station dispatcher that Malcolm would be bumped off if he spoke on the air. Undeterred, he recited Muhammad's affairs on air and called him a fraud. Later that evening, when he appeared on another station, Malcolm said that Boston Minister Louis X knew all about Muhammad's transgressions long before he did. He also claimed that National Secretary John Ali had ordered a hit on him. According to one witness, Ali had recently visited the New York Mosque, trying to convince the lieutenants that Malcolm had to die. Malcolm accused Lewis, John, and other officials of conspiring against him, essentially declaring war on the entire leadership group of the Nation of Islam. In the following days... After the NYPD received several tips about an attempt on his life, Malcolm prepared for a two-day eviction trial. The proceedings began on June 15th, when thirty-two police officers and eight bodyguards escorted him into the Queen's Courthouse for the Civil Court of the City of New York. When he took the stand, he looked out into the courtroom and saw about fifty menacing faces from the fruit staring back at him. That same day, the Fruit held its regularly scheduled meeting at Mosque No. 7, where more than 180 soldiers from New York and New Jersey heard one of the speakers declare, We should destroy Malcolm. Yet one of the captains, most likely Joseph, warned that the timing was not right. Malcolm is not to be touched. The rest is okay. On the second day of the trial, Malcolm testified for nearly two hours— At times, he appeared unnerved, fidgeting and rambling. He did not have a solid legal claim on the house, even if Muhammad had told him it was his home. Near the end of his testimony, perhaps realizing that he was losing the case, Malcolm blurted that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad had taken nine wives. Dismayed, his lawyer, Percy Sutton, tried to redirect him, but Malcolm persisted. "'This is the reason for my suspension,' he said." My mouth was closed so that I couldn't talk. With each passing day, he more viciously attacked Elijah. Muhammad was nobody until I came to New York as his emissary, he argued. He suggested that, since Muhammad broke with him, blacks had left the nation in droves. Muhammad was so furious about the rising number of apostates that he planned to speak at a New York rally on June 28th. The truth, Malcolm suggested— was that Mosque number 7 no longer made the same kind of money it did when he was the minister there. They haven't found anyone to do the job I have been doing in New York. Convinced that he was irreplaceable, Malcolm imagined that no one else in the nation could excite the black Muslims the way he once did. But he was wrong.
0: Context of White Supremacy that is what we'll pick up for the second audio segment. Uh, we are still in chapter 16, chapter 16, about mm, halfway into chapter 16. Blood Brothers, if you have uh, commentary you would like to share, uh, again, we will finish this book next Friday, so this is the second to last segment, so be thinking of major themes uh, that you'll take away from the text, uh, patterns uh, that we've observed in the writing, uh, kind of final assessments be uh, getting that together as we get ready to wrap things up next Friday but uh, the number to dial six four one seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate Number again, 641-715-3640. 1 1 the code is five six four, nine four three. 943 pounds Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you do not want to use your phone to dial in, you can use the free VOPE line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tinytiny.cc forward slash one race, and that is the number one. Address again tinytiny.cc forward slash one race, and that is the number one. When you put in that address, click the link on the left of the page. It says free vote line. Click it. When you do, will open a small window on your screen. The first line is a drop-down menu. Select the number I just gave out which again is 6417153640. Next line it will ask for the code. That code again is 564943. Final line it will ask for a name You can press random keys, you can use your real name, you can use a nickname, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the program. You should be able to hear us live. Uh, It is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Once you do so, you'll hear an audio prompt. Press the number one and we will get you on line. Uh folks who dialed in, uh who have commentary they would like to share, line should be open. Uh feel free to chime in.
5: Yes, I'll be heard. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh dimly for here. Um I'll start with my commentary. Uh, and actually, uh, it looks like the authors of the book are cle- they're cleverly painting, you know, this picture uh, that will leave no doubt in the reader's mind that um, the nation of Islam was out to get. Malcolm X, when in reality when they went to Africa uh the state department was already interfering uh with their travel knew about it and uh in one part on page two forty nine uh, I guess the uh <clears throat> the president of Ghana you know, Kwame Nirama, the State Department was worried about his unpredictable personality and that um, Ghana's dependence on foreign investments and the book was saying the Canadian government exploited the superpowers for financial aid, still Nirama harbored fears that the CIA acted independently of the American government was out to get him a fear exacerbated by two assassination attempts against him. He also suspected that some black expatriates were working as foreign agents. So, you know, uh, the State Department was already uh, involved and uh, Malcolm, as well as uh, Muhammad Ali traveling abroad, you know, may have, um, uh, you know, ulterior motives. They were going for different reasons, but it looks like the way the state department is interfering with things, they're trying to make sure that their goals are met while these two iconic figures are overseas manipulating, uh, the press it said one place in here uh and also um it looked as if malcolm was going to ask foreign dignitaries to aid him in uh going to the u.n to charge the united states against human rights and in a system of white supremacy you know uh if you're in that time or even now, it it makes sense to bring charges against mistreatment and human rights violation. But like I say, in a system of white supremacy, who are you going to go to? Who's going to stand up for you? It's, uh, you know, it's almost uh, futile because uh, if he's dependent on aid from, uh, these, the United States, these superpowers, then how, you know, can someone expect him to go against them and then, uh, actually lose that aid. And then, uh, it sounds like they own. to me, I may be wrong, but it sounds like that Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali were, uh, able to, uh, get. The image out there that they wanted the press to print and to uh, talk about, but they—I'm sure—they were aware of the State Department also trying to uh, screw things up and then create a bigger split between Malcolm X and the uh, Nation of Islam. And I like to talk about one other thing on 257, when the uh, when Egypt. Well, when he slided Nigeria, you know, it—I don't know what to actually think about that, except that um, some of his reasons wasn't based on accurate information. But he made it to Egypt, and the Supreme Islamic Council invited him to visit the U.S. Arab uh, Republic. His religious declaration had thrust him into the international spotlight. Yet American diplomats feared that if Ali accepted the invitation, he might embarrass the United States. Equally troubling to officials, the Arab press made no distinction between Orthodox Muslims and Black Muslims, giving Ali and the NOI undeserved credit and status throughout the Middle East. In advance of his visit, the State Department attempted to diminish Ali's appeal by planting articles in the newspaper magazine that exposed the true nature of black Muslims, making it clear that the sect was genuinely Islamic. Now, yeah, I think that that is, you know, uh, blatant act of racism trying to undermine uh, in progress that, Black people were trying to make, and it's probably going on today. And <clears throat> I'll give someone else a chance to take the call. Uh, thanks for taking the call, Gus. Can
6: I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, Mister Demery. Good evening to everyone else. I'm um, Tom Smith in New York. I had a few comments I wanted to make. Uh, first, um, I didn't like how the author, uh, I think Mr. Demery kind of touched on some of these points, but um, you know, they made it seem like he was um, free from Elijah now, like he was some type of slave or something. Um, I didn't like that, you know. Um, they leave out the fact that you know of uh, 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 where he was before Elijah Muhammad even came into his life. I mean, this guy changed his life. Um, some relationships probably last too long. You know, they probably should have split years earlier. Um, but, um, I mean, you know, he's free from Eliza. Uh, I didn't like that. Um, I didn't like, um, how they said that Ghana was exploiting the Western powers. And I'm like, how did it, who else would a white author would write that uh, African countries exploit in a Western country? That's just, I know that had to be his own words. I mean, cause that just made most, that just was like so illogical, you know, it was just, I more on just popped in my head. Like that, that just doesn't sound right. Um, you know, um, he said, and, um, he crushed his father. Like, um, he was, he was trying to make the point that he was pushing people out of his life, I guess. And I don't even call him, um, to, crushing his father, or doing anything really that bad to his father. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't remember reading um, that part or hearing that part read. Um, they want to make him into an ambassador of um, someone that represents the United States well. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, this is the 1960s. Like, uh, you, you guys are holding people down in the street and you expect someone to go over there and I guess what they said people did in the past was they would go over there and talk about how good they have it in the United States and portray this image and I'm glad they went over there and they did exactly what they did um I wouldn't be surprised because these people are so like you said are so watched I mean the FBI like uh, Mr. Demi was saying the CIA the State Department um they're all up in them. I mean, it, I wouldn't be surprised if um, Muhammad Ali didn't cut his trip short because somebody told him, maybe you better cut your trip short, you know. And he probably said, man, I'm getting out of here. before." Well, because, I mean, these guys are meeting with leaders. Uh, I mean, they had a, a lot of influence. Even um, though know, the people that they're meeting with really didn't have a lot of power. They were placed there by the United States to start with. Uh, they did a, a very... A very good description of um, Patterson, New Jersey, in there. Uh, it looked exactly the day like it's described in the book, and um, you know, a huge part of of um, why it looked so bad today is because of the riots that ensued because of the stuff that was going on um, in this time period. Um, in 1964, they had huge riots there, which destroyed the city, um, and um, they never built all of that stuff after so um that's that's pretty much what it is um and i uh, i will just i'll meet my line for now and I'll let other people talk um, thank you
7: can I be heard yes sir uh greetings to you guys uh greetings to mr. Demery and to thomas and the other calls and listeners um brilliant uh brilliant observations both of you. Um, man, the racism truly abounds in this entire section. I could almost read the whole section and just go through it. Um, I'm going to just uh, pick some, things, but just to, uh, start, I'll start on, uh, I just start with what Mr. Danny talked about in regards to, um, where he talked about is on page 249 where, uh, they, they said, uh, but the material personality made him unpredictable dependent on foreign investment. The Ghanaian government exploited super for financial aid still. Nkrumah harbored fears that the CIA acting independently of the American government was out to get him, a fear exacerbated by two assassination attempts against him. He also suspected that some black expatriates were working as foreign agents. Um, I have, uh, immense respect for, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, um, one of my father actually took his first name when he uh, died, but I changed his name to an African name. He got his name Kwame from, uh, Kwame Nkrumah. And I know someone very well, personally, he's practically family who's from Ghana and he was actually the first and only child in his family of 10 children, um, to, go to school due to the nationalized education program that uh, Kwame Nkrumah hadn't stated. He was also extremely good friends with a close, confidant and cabinet member of uh, Kwame Nkrumah's as well. So he got, had access to quite a bit of inside information to what was happening uh, during this time frame, and if we could imagine that Kwame Nkrumah was under. I remember, I believe it was uh, W.E.B. Boy who speaks about double consciousness. And to me, um, what we're seeing in some of the descriptions here of, of Kwame Nkrumah is that double consciousness in the sense that the same people who have destroyed your country and subjugated you are the same people that you have to turn around and look to for assistance because um, it's like the, a replay of Haiti. You know, like um, once uh, they were able to kick the white people out of Haiti, then Haiti had to pay restitution to the slave master for liberating themselves. And essentially, this was something that took place as far as just the impoverished, the, the ability to impoverish uh, African countries after their so-called liberation was legendary. And um, my friend had told me... Uh, Yes, absolutely. Uh, The CIA was out there. Um, They were involved in in these attempts on his life Um, and there was just immense, immense pressure on Kwame Nkrumah and Kwame Nkrumah had such uh, love for his people that he wanted to do the best that he could but he was getting stymied by patriots for sure. Um, Some of whom were involved in the assassination attempts on his life. Eventually he was exiled as well and um, he uh he was exiled and the cabinet member that my friend knew very well actually was in exile with him. I'm forgetting the country. Is it um it's Guinea. Yes it was Guinea. And as a matter of fact he died in Guinea. Uh and when he died in Guinea they actually were planning to bury him in Guinea. But the people in Ghana were so angered and felt disrespected by the fact that Guinea was going to bury their leader that there was almost a war started between those two countries to return his body back to Ghana. So there, he, he was understood and loved by the people because of the work he tried to do, but white supremacy seriously stymied his ability to do anything um, for his people. And also he was educated here as well. So he knew America as far as uh, he was educated in Washington, D.C. So he was very aware of uh, how America functioned. And I think even his experiences here kind of informed understanding of what was happening to him in in, in his country and obviously like they said he did not want to have anything interrupt or disrupt the relationship between himself and united his country in the united states simply because these were the same people that he had to turn around and ask for turn around and ask for assistance simply because of the state that his country was left in when uh they were so-called freed um the authors are just practicing legendary racism here um, I think there was a section here on two two hundred fifty where oh yes, yeah, says initially the State Department viewed Malcolm's journey abroad as a threat to American foreign policy. If he convinced just one African nation to charge the US with human rights violations, he could have damaged America's international reputation. In the end, though, the State Department concluded that Malcolm lacked political leverage. With the officials he met, he had nothing tangible to offer. No bridges, no dams, no money. In fact, he did not receive an official endorsement from, from Nkrumah. I mean, excuse me, the fact that he did not receive an official endorsement from Nkrumah minimized his impact. All in all, American officials surpri- surmised Malcolm X created less of a stir than the embassy had feared. And to me, this is interesting because this is a, a nice example of how white people will kidnap you from where you, where you are from take you to another place that they intend to take you to, force you to be a slave, and then destroy where you come from, so that even when you go back to what you considered home, it's no longer home. And that's essentially what it was. And, and Malcolm Malcolm was just as impoverished as the leaders that he was going to visit. So when you see um, that when they discuss the fact that he had nothing tangible to offer, no bridges, no dams, no money, essentially that is just the way white people have, have made this system. They designed it so brilliantly that no matter what you do, there is nothing you can really offer and it takes a lot of work um and in a lot of ways that would have to be clandestine work to even develop anything that you would be able to utilize to to create some sort of um, uh, exchange of whatever type of currency or whatever type of goods and services and you know they successfully enslaved the entire planet to the point where it's it's hard to make any inroads and then at the same time Everyone, including Malcolm and the African leaders, also have to turn to these same white people to get everything. in all areas of people activity, their approval is is paramount to you being able to survive on any level whatsoever. So it's such a a a, 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 a between a rock and a hard place scenario that um that is just it's almost impossible to make any headway. Um on the bottom of page two fifty one. Uh, he, they write, Ali po- po- paused in the middle of his conversation, looking quizzically at Malcolm, who appeared almost unrecognizable, sporting a reddish, reddish goatee, white robe, and sandals. At first, Ali said nothing. He just kept walking, slowly moving away from his friend, leaving him behind like an old suitcase, heavy baggage he no longer wished to carry. When he and his entourage reached a row of parked cars, Malcolm rushed up to him, hoping to flag him down before he drove away. Brother Muhammad, brother Muhammad. Uh, finally, Ali stopped and faced Malcolm. And I just found the fact that they would describe uh, Minister Malcolm X as an old suitcase, heavy baggage he no longer wished to carry. Like, the disrespect is just palpable in the way that they're um, describing, you know, our ancestors. And I just find it to be t- tasteless, t- tacky, tasteless, and disgusting. Um, on page two fifty eight, there's a brief section that states, "In Cairo, Ali showed great favor, greater excuse me, showed far greater respect for his host than he did in Nigeria. Elijah Muhammad had taught him that the Asiatic black man had descended from the rich Nile Valley region, and that." Ancient Egypt was once the most powerful black nation in history. Perceiving Egyptian superiority, Ali viewed his surroundings as evidence that he had reached the most advanced Muslim country in the world. And I remember Dr. Ben speaking about this many, many years ago, and it's something he repeated quite a bit because he was angered by the whole concept of the Asiatic black man, which was incorrect. Um, Essentially, human beings were uh, developed in Africa, and that entire... um, bit of misinformation is now has now been spread on a planetary level, and um I think it was Mr. Themy who discussed the fact that um muhammad ali was was basically in a, in certain aspects speaking based on misinformation and I think you guys always speak about this quite a bit the the fact of being accurate and and really trying not to further confuse people and to me that was one of the the i say the major deficits to what Elijah Muhammad was teaching was that he was not accurate, and these are things that I've seen people, even to this day, um, sometimes want to get a physical altercations about because they really don't understand reality versus a religion that was created for them by a man who had black people's best interest in heart. But, you know, in the end, he made quite a few mistakes that ended up having, um, you know, in some cases, a negative effect on the way black people relate to one another, even though he did, did quite a bit of um, powerfully good work. Um, I just think these the the overall the the writers themselves are they 're so they 're so racist, so racist it 's almost nauseating the way that they write and I think um here the other thing I wanted to touch on too before I um leave uh, my line was uh when they talk at the end about uh when it, when, when they talk about malcolm 's trip to, uh, to Mecca, they really, they skirt over the fact that he was also, they attempted, the CIA attempted to poison him when he was also in, um, in Egypt as well. So there's a lot that they're leaving out and the way that they're setting up the situation um, for Malcolm to be uh, killed by Nation of Islam members, they're completely leaving out the fact that the, the CIA was all in that. They were all involved in that. So basically, they're making it look like it was just simply Malcolm X and his people against Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, and they're not even touching it. Now, now, mind you, throughout the whole book, we've been reading about all of the FBI involvement, all of the clandestine government behavior, and in this section in particular, I find it telling that they leave all of that out. This is something you can read in um, Carl Evans' book that we talked about before. They leave it all out to make it look like it's just niggas killing niggas, niggas fighting niggas, and that's what niggas do. And then with that, um, I'll mute my line. Thank you for taking my call.
0: For sure. For Oops. Yep, yeah, for sure. Appreciate that from everybody. The the caller at uh, 6353, 6353, 6353. Did you have comments here you wanted to share as well, sir? Uh,
1: yes. Good afternoon, everyone, us and callers and listeners. I'm going to comment on what seems to be a common thread, for me at least, is um, the mockery of um, Muhammad Ali. It was said in the part of, the book that I was listening to, uh, for example, the mockery, e- embarrassment type of, uh, that you know, was somewhat embarrassed, and that while he was in Egypt, um, they doubted he could master the rituals of Islam. You know, could he really, could he really, uh, on his own, uh Conduct himself like a Muslim. Is he speaking correctly? And he's going around saying um, uh, I, I, I'm "Amar Akbar" or something similar. Um, and he's not really. Is he saying? Is he saying it at inappropriate times? Um, they question his sincerity. Um, and the State Department, how they cringe. And they're all in his business. They're following him around, making mockery. Look how excited he is, and so child. You know, in other words, how childlike and uh, curious and wide-eyed, and just like he's. Uh, this is one of the most, in my observations, um, ri- footage and ritual and um, other visual um, clips I've seen. Muhammad Ali appeared to be a very confident man. And uh, so I think that the analysis for me, especially that theme of just such wonder and childlikeness and wide-eyed about uh, how Muhammad Ali conducts himself, but we, we really can't just be ourselves and enjoy our lives and be present in the manner that we would like to be as long as we're not hurting or insulting anyone, that should be fine. But to be critical and demeaning and disrespectful about how we are behaving and how, who are we embarrassing and um, how we're conducting ourselves. And, uh, uh, and when we're confident and self-respecting, uh, and definitely, if you go quiet on them and mind your own business, it seems to be a backlash and disdain and hostility and uh, about us and what we're doing and how we're behaving. And, and look how it's childlike, and we need to hold their hand and lead them, and they can't really do it on their own. They need a wake-up call. So I just wanted to say that part, and uh, I'll mute my line.
0: Appreciate that, ma'am. Sorry, I was incorrectly stated, sir, at the beginning. And appreciate your uh, commentary as well, ma'am. Um, other folks, if you have commentary, please do not wait till the last minute. Go ahead and get your hand up if you have things you would like to share um, before we get to the second audio segment. We have um, a little less than 30 minutes before we get there. Uh, some of the things I will share. Uh, let's see. There. Muted.
3: Oops. Unmuted.
0: There were quite a few newspaper articles uh, cited uh, this weekend. The whole time that we've been going, um, a lot of the New York Times reports. You can get those if you are interested in kind of checking some of the material. Uh, one of the reports Clay makes Malcolm X friend. This the title of a New York Times report. And again, uh, John Patash he talks about this consistently in his uh, both of his books, particularly book number one. Uh, the FBI's war, since that's a major theme in this book, FBI's war against Tupac Shakur and Black leaders, uh, Minister Malcolm's uh, assault by the FBI and intelligence agencies is a, a big part of that book as well. Uh, but he talks about how one aspect of counterintelligence programs, Quaintel Pro, is having uh, racists work for major mainstream press outlets, uh, either directly and or indirectly where you have sources that are friendly to you and your objectives, where you can have someone at the FBI or the CIA, they can write a report, and then whoever the individual is who works for the New York Times or the Washington Post or the L.A. Times, they will just write it and post it as though it's theirs, having this sort of thing done. Or you actually have people that are working for you, that are on your payroll, who also are working at one of these news sources, and they just write up whatever you want uh, in the paper, but from the New York Times, Clay makes Malcolm ex-friend, says Cassius Clay derided today an old friend's advice to be responsible, proclaimed he was going diamond hunting here, and disclosed that when he got to United... Arab Republic, he would marry four wives, Cecilia, Abigail, Susie, and Peaches. The world heavyweight champion made these pronouncements to an admiring crowd that pressed around his table while he ate breakfast this morning in the hotel ambassador dining room. The old friend was Malcolm X, the former black Muslim leader who first induced clay to join the movement and later broke with it himself. Malcolm X left this morning for Morocco. Clay, who arrived from New York yesterday, received the following cable from Malcolm X on the eve of his departure. Uh, We heard this part uh, in the book about, you know, you are a tremendous icon, uh, globally and be aware of your responsibilities and what have you. They continue, asked what he thought of the advice. Clay said he had seen Malcolm X this morning just before he left the hotel for the airport and didn't seem very responsible to me. This is the part where he said he's gone, he's completely out and he's got this funny white robe on, blah, blah, blah. Clay turned to one of his entourage, Herbert, oh, we heard that part too. Uh, Elijah is the most powerful, nobody listens to Malcolm anymore. Uh, today was Clay's first full day in Africa where he intends uh, to remain, to Uh, They go on about the diamond hanging. Let's see. And they just go on. It's kind of that same theme, uh, at least in my view, in this article of kind of uh, mocking Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali at this point. Uh, And I'm not even though they are still calling him Cassius Clay in this article. uh, And I'm not even disputing whether or not Muhammad Ali actually did these things. I'm certainly not trying to take a position that he or anybody else, Gus T. Renegade included, uh, is perfect and, you know, each and every time does, you know, the, the most outstanding thing. That certainly is not the case under the system of racism white supremacy. However, this book did start talking about the inferior education uh that at the time Cassius Clay received in Louisville, Kentucky, just like most of the other uh black people, just like Minister Malcolm uh received Uh, Growing up, just like many of us have received under the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, you certainly are not educated and equipped with information to be able to go out and function at an optimal level in the universe. And just that alone strikes me as just another uh, really just contemptuous aspect of white supremacy where they will victimize you. Abuse you, and then sit back and ridicule you for being in a pitiful state that they have meticulously designed their system to make sure is going to be the case. Oh my gosh! Look at this buffoon. He's going out here and behaving. Look at what he's doing. Oh, and they can't even read correctly. When everything, I mean, they are burning the midnight oil, as Mr. Fuller says, to make sure that that is the end result. Uh, But again, uh, if you want to check that article out, it is available. Clay makes Malcolm X friend. And I also whites love this sort of thing. When they can make a public display, they can make entertainment out of victims of racism having any sort of quarrel, any sort of disagreement. How can we exacerbate that? Let's play that up in the press. Oh, Cassius Clay just Malcolm X. <laughs> we'll play that up in the press. Oh, Malcolm X called King uh, an Uncle Tom and that sort of thing. And I mean, you see this right on today. People will get on and complain about President Obama or just... Pick the person, any sort of argument or debate or rift between black people, even uh, in Canada. They had uh, different black people uh, sparring publicly about Black Lives Matter Toronto. They love that sort of thing. We'll, make, we'll put that on the front page uh, of our newspaper and play that up, give that as much attention as possible. Uh, also, I thought it was really important, uh, Roz bringing up the point about uh, Minister Malcolm uh, being poisoned, uh, where that does not come up in the book at all. Uh, I was kind of following the dates a little bit. Uh, this poisoning happened in July of 1964, unless I've been misinformed. Uh, and it looks like we are not quite there yet in the book. It looks like where we stopped at, we're kind of in June of 64. But it doesn't look like this comes up at all. And that is hugely uh, important and just further evidence. Of just the massive international surveillance that is way beyond the capacity of what uh, any members of the Nation of Islam, Fruit of Islam, or really any other uh, Negro organization of this time, I would even submit right now, uh, those capabilities, which Minister Malcolm also acknowledged uh, later on. And I would pause This, again, in my view, demonstrates who is most informed about racism, white supremacy, uh, and a massive differential in information. Uh, It is just, in my view, it is monumentally inaccurate to state that white people are poorly informed about racism. They're not ignorant about racism. They're not ignorant. We should not play them cheap uh, and just say, well, they're, they're stupid or they're ignorant or they're not very intelligent. They're not very smart consistently they demonstrate a far superior understanding of what is happening in the world what's happening with us what specifically what's happening with racism white supremacy than we do and the concluding statement would be clearly we do not know enough to solve this problem that's not gus's view that is self-evident continuing um, where we just do not have an understanding of The massive scale of this problem and white dedication and involvement uh, with terrorizing us where even within this, even though it's not coming out directly in the text now, the massive surveillance uh, that they were under, uh, there's a, uh, there are many reports, but a report that I'm going to read here, just a couple quick paragraphs, uh, Real Black History Month, Malcolm X, Evidence of U.S. Intelligence Assassination. And again, Carl Evans' book goes into great detail about this, uh, The International Scope of the surveillance that minister Malcolm was under. He talked about this uh, CIA agents uh, tracking him, following him. He wrote letters back to his wife, Betty Shabazz about this, seeing these whites following her, him around, going to different places. Uh, as Kwame and Kruma stated in the report, I suspect probably some of these black people that were there too, victims, I suspect that they were being manipulated and used to follow, take notes, whatever uh, the racists wanted them to do in their surveillance of minister Malcolm and, Uh, Muhammad Ali Uh, but just quick paragraphs from this report Uh, Malcolm X believed the US intelligence further set up his near fatal poisoning in Cairo Egypt in late July of 1964 he said CIA agents made their presence obvious to try and intimidate him as he traveled through Africa they didn't want him to present his planned United Nations proposal with African leaders to declare that the US was violating American blacks human rights at a Cairo restaurant Malcolm said that just as he felt the poison in his food he realized that he recognized the waiter as someone he saw in new york rushed to the hospital he was barely saved by a stomach pumping the attending doctor said there was poison in his food malcolm had been concerned about noi death threats but he knew that they didn't have a global spy capacity several other disclosures support malcolm's believed that this was a cia attempt on his life a high-level african diplomat later said that french counter espionage department reported that the cia planned malcolm's murder and france barred malcolm for the first time in fear of getting scapegoated for the assassination the fbi director wrote a confidential memo on malcolm's travel plans through britain and france he sent it to the cia director the army intelligence intel chief the naval intel director and in the air force Counterintelligence chief, as well as intel chiefs in London and Paris. One such memorandum on Malcolm and African leaders went directly to the CIA director of covert action, Richard Helms, who had a key role in assassination plots. I will stop there. Uh, and again, just to emphasize, and like I said, uh, The Judas Factor, Carl Evans, fantastic book. I would definitely encourage people to read that and kind of compare and contrast uh, how that book is written and researched. But that's one of the major themes. Uh, the international scale of surveillance and coordinated violence against black people who were making an effort against racism, white supremacy. They really emphasize the same thing happening to Patrice Lumumba uh, in the Congo and how Minister Malcolm talked about this a lot and indicted whites in the U.S. for their involvement uh, in Lumumba's uh, assassination, uh, that this same sort of thing continues. And just with uh, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, them going and talking to Uh, Different leaders on the continent and talking about racism here and particularly saying that we are all facing the same problem, the global system of racism, white supremacy and what's happening to black people in the states is the same thing that is happening to black people on the continent. That sort of thing is massive Uh, racist work to disrupt that connection constantly by whatever means has to be done if that means that we have to uh, kill you and shop your body up so we can't even find your remains as was done with uh, Patrice Lumumba so be it and it works even better if we can do it and blame it on some other black people so you all will squabble and maybe kill some more of you all and it'll take 50 years for anybody to find out that whites were the ones who coordinated and orchestrated all of this they are brilliant masterful at pulling off schemes in that sort of manner uh, just a couple quick things from the text and then if other people have questions things that's it out uh, things they would like to share we'll make time for that as well um, I suspected uh, and it tends to be the case at least when I hear whites talk about Minister Malcolm they make an effort to really play up that you know he had this epiphany and after he traveled abroad and he met white Muslims while he was traveling and he totally disavowed this notion that whites were devils or that all whites uh, were racist and that just wasn't the view that he had at the time he was assassinated in 65. And even, you know, a slight bit before that in 64, um, all like VGQ, number one, make sure I don't get any sort of dispute or what have you, but I think whites are very, very skilled uh, at manipulating that aspect of minister Malcolm and not really staying focused on the fact that he continued to say, I think as he pointed out here, I am still fighting against racism, white supremacy and whites who are not demonstrating that humanity and how they treat black people, uh, which is way more important. You can talk and say that all white people are not racist, but let's go and find the white people that we can evidence prove are not racist. And then we can have that conversation. If you can't find these individuals, then, you know, I'll just leave it at that. Um, let's see when I thought, I think it was Thomas in New York when he pointed out the passage that says, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, quote unquote leader uh, in Ghana, uh, Nkrumah's mercurial personality made him unpredictable. Dependent on foreign investment, the Ghanaian government exploited the superpowers for financial aid. In fact, just that sentence alone, dependent on foreign investment, the Ghanaian government exploited the superpowers. It's been my experience that if you are dependent, you are not in position to exploit anybody. If you are dependent 10 times out of nine, and that's the way I meant to say it, you are the one that's going to be exploited. If you are dependent, that is absolutely absurd. And I submit when you run into things like that, that are absolutely illogical, that is not logical. If you are in a weaker dependent position for you to be the exploiter. And I cannot ever think of any time in my life. I think Thomas said that as well, uh, where I've heard anyone say, any quote unquote country on the continent is exploiting a white nation. That is a first that I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and that would be a point I would be jumping up and down about uh, with either of these authors uh, to, you know, provide some evidence. What are you even talking about writing a sentence uh, like that? Um, and even continuing after they go that, you know, in Krumah and, and Ghana, they're exploiting these white nations still in Krumah Harbor fears that the CIA acting independently of the American government was out to get him. I think Mr. Demi Ford touched on this as well. Again, this does not sound like someone who's in a powerful position to exploit. If you're the exploiter, then you would be the one that's carrying out, you know, your secret espionage and manipulating things in a clandestine fashion to make sure that things go the way that you want them to go on an international level. Uh, continuing. Uh, and again, they, they come back. This is just on the same page uh, in response. under Secretary of State W. Avril. Harriman warned in Kramer that if his government continued to criticize America, the United States would suspend funding for the Volta bridge project. Again, if you're the exploiter, you don't have this sort of, you know, ultimatum put to you that if you don't behave, you don't leave that Negro minister Malcolm alone and stop criticizing us and what we're going to do, then you're not going to get your bridge or whatever. That does not sound like someone who is in a powerful position to do any quote unquote exploiting a uh, really important point. As I've stated before, any time that you make an effort to connect non-white people globally or on a broad scale and saying that we are all victims of white supremacy and that whites are our collective problem enemy that really is going to draw a lot of attention from racists they're going to try to extinguish that way of conceptualizing the problem uh, immediately uh, where you could have a more coordinated united independent counter-racist effort uh, amongst victims of racism non-white people um, I, too, noted the metaphor when he talked about Muhammad Ali leaving Minister Malcolm uh, behind like an old suitcase, heavy baggage he no longer wished to uh, carry. That Talked about that regularly, the importance of metaphors and just that way of thinking about uh, presenting uh, Minister Malcolm. Uh, this disparagement and or ridicule of these uh, important black figures, I think, has continued throughout the book, as you all have noted. Um, let's see. We got it again uh, where uh, they write if Ali hardly recognized him, Malcolm perceived that Ali had changed too. he could see that the boxer was no longer the sweet, affable young man who had once bounced Malcolm's daughters on his knee. This man, Muhammad Ali, was Elijah's loyal subject, wearing a new mask, playing the part of the serious, vindictive black Muslim. When Ali cut Malcolm out of his life, he revealed a new side of himself. That the public had not yet seen an angrier, crueler side that would develop more and more in the coming years. Uh, and he talks about how he would attack people that had wronged or slighted the Nation of Islam, Floyd Patterson and others. Um, to me, this just sounds very much like the same pattern of describing both Muhammad Ali minister Malcolm as being deceptive. I think that's the term that's been used consistently to describe, uh, both of these individuals conniving deceptive, uh, almost the trope of the angry Negro, uh, coming through here. Uh, and you know, I'm just going to go out here and, and be vicious with anybody who says anything bad about, uh, Elijah Muhammad or the nation of Islam or any perceived slight. I am the, the angry black man, uh, trope, uh, comes out once again in their writing here. um, Let's see. Anything else I wanted to make sure get in? Yeah, I I just think it's hugely important the kind of downplaying the CIA, FBI involvement in all of the conflict. Uh, And I'm not again, I'm not disputing this. Uh, You can read many sources authored by black people and and go back. It's verifiable uh, in terms of the animosity and conflict directed from the Nation of Islam towards Minister Malcolm and the bickering and what have you that went on. Uh, I just think it is, it is massively important. In fact, I would say it is incorrect to have a discussion about that without including whites played an extraordinary role in exacerbating that, encouraging that, uh, pushing that in a direction that it was going to result in someone ending up dying, namely Minister Malcolm, and happening in such a way that Other black people could be blamed for this, uh, where you get the two birds with one stone effect, we can neutralize, kill Minister Malcolm, and at the same time, we can undercut support for the Nation of Islam, so people will think, oh, these are just some killers and, you know, thugs uh, who, who killed Minister Malcolm and we're upset with them, so we can knock out, you know, two organizations or two important forces at the same time, as I've stated whites they are phenomenally skillful worldwide at doing exactly that sort of project to undermine counter-racist efforts uh, and I will pause there uh, other folks have uh, things that stood out uh, in the text uh, anything that you think is important from the section uh, that we heard or overall uh, conclusions patterns uh, as we we're wrapping the book up can
7: I
6: yes sir um, yes I just wanted to say um, quickly um, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, the CIA, um, when, you're, when you're being under surveillance here in the United States by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, that's one thing. When you lead a country and you're dealing with the CIA, I mean, that's a whole nother level of sophistication and spying and assassinating people, assassinating world leaders. I mean, these, these are the best and uh, I think that he definitely um, realized that, you know, it's no black people in the world have the capabilities and the resources that they have. You know, I mean, it's it's just, and especially in in, in Africa, where it's not just them. I mean, you got the British MI five, MI six. I mean, you got the French secret so, you got the Italian. I mean, they're all in there in cahoots together, taking the resources out. I mean, any one of them could have been, you know, got the call to to put out the poison. I mean, it could have been done in so many different ways. Lastly, um, I always said that I think that what was the defining moment for both um, the death of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King was when they started talking about human rights as opposed to civil rights. And uh, ironically, the United States is one of the only, I think, five or six countries. To never vote for the rights of indigenous people to human rights um, along with Canada South Africa, New Zealand and Australia and you notice they all have the same pattern uh, it's just uh, amazing how they get all these African countries that would be able to outvote them to have them upon the United States and Britain and France and whoever and even though Britain in the France might vote, you know, for it. They know that they're not gonna outnumber the other groups and they get everyone else to just have no vote. It's ridiculous. And I meet my thank you. Uh
0: anything else? Folks wanna get in before we get to the second audio segment or are folks content? Um, can I yes, be
7: heard? Go ahead, bro. Oh, okay. Thank you, Mr. Dumley. Um, yeah, I just wanted to touch on a couple of things. Um I thought about uh the first thing was when they discussed um Muhammad Ali not knowing what the the outfit that Malcolm was wearing is called a galabaya. Um it's a long white robe that's worn. Um, they wore it all through they wear it all throughout the Middle East. I, actually, I ended up wearing one when I went to Egypt. Um, and him not knowing what that was or not understanding what the prayer positions were and things like that in Islam was also something that um, I think because Elijah Muhammad really didn't understand what Orthodox um, Islam how it was practiced, because I had actually had a, a good friend that I used to go to school with who actually started off in the nation of Islam and eventually transitioned to become a Sunni Muslim. And when he became a Sunni Muslim, he said that, he told me this person. he said he realized just how much the nation does not teach you about what he considered Orthodox Islam, Sunni Islam, and how he felt that And later, even though he still had respect for the nation, he still felt that it did a disservice because, um, when you go to, or when you're amongst Muslims who might be practicing Sunni or Shia Islam and you don't know the fair positions and all of these types of things, these are, you know, um, this is stuff that basically makes people mock you. So I just um, wanted to touch on that. And then I thought it was telling too, that, um, again, just to be psychologically acculturated to how the system of racism, and white supremacy works when Muhammad Ali, um, basically, um, you know, basically shut down his trip in Nigeria to go to Egypt, which was run by Muslims, um, by Arabs, excuse me, um, who, of course, who I, who I call them pseudo white supremacists. And um, the racist authors allude to the fact that he felt that he was in a, quote unquote, better country by being in Egypt and a more um, modern and prosperous country than he was um, when he was in Nigeria. And of course, when you juxtapose it, Nigeria is full of um, crystal black people. And uh, Egypt only has crystal black people as you go south. He stayed in Cairo. So I've been there. When you go to Cairo, it is nothing but basically white people, um, which are, you know, Persians, Greeks, and all of them mixed with Arabs. It, it does not get black until you get to Luxor and any place further than that. You might see one or two black people, but in Cairo, you're going to see none. So um, I just wanted to put that out there just because so, it just kind of um, just made me think about that. Um, thank you very much. And I'll meet my line.
5: Uh, yes, quickly, I just want to uh, point out, you brought up, uh, the book was emphasizing that after uh, Malcolm X got back from Mecca, <clears throat> that uh, he was a changed man, his eyes were open, and uh, the way this is reading is, that he was talking to a uh, reporter when he they, they asked him, uh, do we under- correctly understand that you now do not think all whites are evil. True, sir, my trip to Mecca has opened my eyes. I no longer subscribe to racism. I have adjusted my thinking to the point that I believe that whites are human beings. And like you pointed out that uh, he said, as long as this is borne out by their humane attitude towards Negroes. Uh, And then Malcolm had a willingness to uh, work with civil rights leaders but uh, what's important about you know that is they were emphasized you know some uh dramatic change that Malcolm had, so that you know it would, like you said, i guess in a way uh clarify whites, and then this this attack on the nation of Islam, like they wasn't orthodox uh Muslims, you know, but part of the constitution. Uh, is that you have the right uh religious freedom to worship as you know you see fit or please and then they're denying again basic uh civil rights guaranteed by the constitution along with uh human rights. And uh I don't think much emphasis should be put on oh and one other thing I've seen a documentary of uh dark skin uh black man that made a journey to mecca and he documented it and he documented the racism that he encountered uh along the way they wanted him only playing praying with uh they were ushered him into areas where there were other dark people you know and the white people or the lighter skinned individuals were segregated even in the city of mecca and then with that i'll mute my line thank you take the call good For sure, for sure. Uh, Really quick,
0: I just wanted to uh, get in as well. Um, I think uh, Mr. Demery was touching on that. I think whites, because they do the classifying, uh, racial classification, uh, and other important matters, when you are in a position of power, you can do the classifying. Uh, Not that it's not important. I think uh, Roz pointed out, I do think it's important. Uh, Distinctions, right, differences between, if we're talking Nation of Islam and uh, Sunni, what they call orthodox Islam. I do think that that is important, but I also think it is significant, and in my view, an act of racism uh, because it gives this suggestion that the nation of Islam is illegitimate. They are invalid. These are just some, you know, racist cult negros, uh, who have made up some things and have their little goofy practices and the way their way of, of looking at the world. Uh, and, you know, this is not something that we should take seriously, and it's just totally invalid. So anything that they did is just, you know, delegitimate, delegitimized, uh, in that way of thinking. I think that's one of the ways that racist white supremacists practice racism. It's kind of the opposite of these are the respectable Negroes, whomever we say it is, uh, still Negroes, victims of white supremacy. And these are, you know, the no counts over here. Uh, also, uh, I think it's important, uh, the system of white supremacy, they do a very good job of victimizing, strategically employing victims of white supremacy who they have allowed to accomplish or do some things, whether it's entertainers, athletes, uh, whatever the case. Uh, there's a whole book written about this in terms of using uh, athletes, so that they can go out and say, Hey, see, you know, we've allowed this black person to make a lot of money, and you know, they've made some records or they've made some movies, uh, or they're a big, you know, athletic star, and they'll send them around the world and say, What are you talking about? We don't have any racism in the United States. What are you talking about? Negroes are, are treated great. You know, look at this person. Look at Jackie Robinson, or, you know, look at this person. And it's, it's not, I'm in no way castigating the black person that is being victimized, used. I'm just saying that this has been a long running pattern. Uh, within the system of racism, white supremacy. And there's even a book written about it. I was trying to get the author on the program uh, as a guest. I just uh, am sure I'll I'll get the the book and the author before we wrap. But uh, there's scholarship on this that points it out beautifully, and uh, we'll do that before we uh, wrap things up today. Uh, with that, we will get to the second audio clip. If you had additional commentary you wanted to get in, just uh, save it for the second, uh, after we finish the second audio segment. Uh, just make a note so you don't forget. Uh, we are, again, we're in Chapter 16, kind of midway point of chapter, chapter 16. We're picking up on the paragraph that starts off, It was the kind of heat-soaked day when the police expect trouble. That's what we're picking up at. Chapter 16, Context of White Supremacy, Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, Audio Segment Number 2.
2: It was the kind of heat-soaked day when the police expect trouble. On June 28th, Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X organized competing rallies, battling for the soul of Harlem. In the days leading up to Muhammad's arrival, the police heard rumors that Malcolm's men would assassinate him at the airport. They had also heard that the black Muslims would never allow Malcolm to preach on the same day as Muhammad. The threats became so intense that Malcolm wrote Muhammad an open letter declaring a truce, but he knew as well as Elijah did that the war would not end without casualties. At 142nd Street and 5th Avenue, a long line formed outside the Harlem Armory, where members of the fruit frisked the crowd, searching for weapons and spies. Inside the building, the fruit security team took their positions, guarding the exits and patrolling the aisles. Two ranks stood in front of the speaker's platform, arms folded, while another squad scanned the audience from the balcony. Packing the auditorium, an estimated 7,500 followers stood up when a phalanx escorted Elijah on stage. Muhammad delivered a 75-minute harangue, coughing and wheezing as he strained his voice, While the audience fanned the stifling air with programs. Denouncing Malcolm without mentioning his name, he fumed, There is some person who wants to be what I am, but that person is not able to be what I am. Sitting a few feet away from Elijah, where Malcolm once sat, the nation's guest speaker, a handsome, enthusiastic black man, led the chorus, Teach us! Teach us! Reminding the faithful of his power, Elijah preached, Maybe you won't believe it, but I am the key to every one of you. I'm not something of myself. I'm something of a god. Nodding, the guest speaker shouted above the crowd's applause, Yes, sir! Yes, sir! When Elijah finished his address, the most famous black Muslim walked over to the podium. Dressed in a black suit, white shirt, and skinny black tie, Muhammad Ali, tight-lipped and solemn, approached the lectern. After offering the traditional Muslim greeting, Assalamu Alaikum, he explained that he had rushed home from Cairo at Elijah Muhammad's request. Elijah desired his presence at the armory so that Ali could remind all of Harlem why he had chosen the messenger over the hypocrite. Ali told the nation that Muslims all over the world recognized the Honorable Elijah Muhammad as a legitimate spiritual leader. Clearly, with Malcolm gone, The boxer would serve as Elijah's new spokesman. Ali delivered the goods. He said exactly what Elijah wanted him to say. Everywhere he went, Ghana, Nigeria, and Egypt, Muslims asked him the same question. How is the Honorable Elijah Muhammad? If it were not for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, he insisted, the whole world would not know his name. He owed everything to the messenger. Graciously, he presented Elijah with a miniature golden mosque, a gift sent from Egypt's Supreme Council of Islam. As he raised the mini mosque in the air, Louis X, Herbert Muhammad, John Ali, and Elijah Jr., all enemies of Malcolm, crowded around him, smiling for the cameramen. That same day, Ali's recently assigned press secretary, Leon 4X, also known as Leon Amir, attended an FOI meeting at the armory. A lean, diminutive man, standing barely five feet four, Amir was known as a karate expert with a quick temper. He had joined Mosque No. 7 in 1956, four years after receiving an honorable discharge as a steward in the Marines. According to his FBI file, Leon was diagnosed with schizophrenia after exhibiting a sudden episode of acutely disturbed and obviously psychotic behavior. In a sudden rage, he attacked a large man with an axe during an argument over a betting roll. After spending a few months in a psychiatric hospital, he returned to New York, where he was arrested on separate occasions for robbery and grand larceny. But the life of a hardened criminal dissatisfied him. He missed the Marines and the feeling of camaraderie that came with serving in a military unit. When a fellow veteran convinced him to attend a meeting at the local mosque, Leon embraced the nation's code of strict discipline and became a soldier in the fruit of Islam. Soon, he turned his life around, teaching martial arts, and eventually becoming one of Malcolm's bodyguards. After Malcolm left the nation, though, he remained loyal to Elijah Muhammad, and John Ali gave him direct orders to keep an eye on the heavyweight champion. But when he heard the messenger's son talk at the armory, he began questioning his decision. Elijah Jr. spoke with a viciousness that troubled him. Malcolm was a red, no-good dog, a hypocrite, who deserved to die. If we decide to kill Malcolm, he said, no one can help him. Consumed with rage, Elijah's son berated the New York fruit for failing to execute him. Malcolm should have been killed by now. If Malcolm refused to leave the queen's home deeded to the nation, then they would make him leave. All you have to do is go there and clap on the walls until the walls come down, and then cut the nigger's tongue out and put it in an envelope and send it to me, and I'll stamp it approved and give it to the messenger. Leon knew what he had just heard. Everyone in the room understood the implications of the tirade. Looking back, Thomas 15X, a member of the New York Fruit, said that when the messenger's son spoke, he spoke on behalf of his father. Back then. That was an order. Later that evening, 20 blocks away at the Audubon Ballroom, more than 600 people listened to Malcolm announce his latest initiative, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, OAAU, a movement inspired by his trip to Africa and the limitations of Muslim Mosque, Inc., MMI. He had not given up on MMI, but he recognized that it lacked a clearly defined focus And that its religious name turned off too many secularists. Seeking a political platform, Malcolm courted black radicals and intellectuals to join his revolutionary program. In his opening address, he outlined the OAAU's goals, voter registration campaigns, rent strikes, business boycotts, and an all-out war on organized crime. Malcolm's speech articulated an ambitious program that he could not deliver. Facing mounting pressures, his attention fractured under too many demands. Without his salary from the nation, Malcolm could hardly afford to feed his family, let alone fund two fledgling organizations. Continuing an extensive travel schedule, he tried raising money and building alliances abroad, but spending so much time away undermined his ability to build the OAAU. He hoped that publicizing the death threats would give him added protection from his assassins, but it also scared away potential members from attending his meetings. On July 2nd, a few days after Malcolm announced the formation of the OAAU, two women filed paternity suits against Elijah Muhammad in Los Angeles. The sex scandal made sensational headlines. In large, bold letters, the Chicago Defender screamed, Paternity suits against Mr. Muhammad denied. Muhammad's former secretaries were not the only ones discrediting him. His grandson Hassan told the defender that he had quit the NOI because the officials, including his relatives, exploited the members. His grandfather was nothing more than a fake and a fraud, stealing money from the poor. He could not understand why many of his grandfather's longtime followers never received their original names yet Cassius Clay was blessed to receive a holy name. Hassan's uncle Wallace echoed his nephew's charges, claiming that the nation's officials ordered attacks against dissidents. The leadership in Chicago is ruthless and frantic, he said, and they will kill you. The time for talking was over. The blood season was beginning. A day after Muhammad's mistresses filed paternity suits, Malcolm worked from home, while Betty rested at the hospital, recuperating from childbirth. Around 11.30 p.m., he told the babysitter that he needed to move his car, possibly because he did not want assassins to think that he was home. After teaching the teenage girl how to handle a shotgun, Malcolm quietly opened the front door and peeked outside. Darting toward his car, he spotted two knife-wielding men charging at him. Before they could catch him, he leapt into the sedan, turned the key, and sped away. After circling the neighborhood, he returned home, called the police, and waited for them to arrive, shotgun in hand. The following day, Boston Captain Clarence X and Springfield Captain John Mohammed visited the Harlem Mosque. Given full authority over the East Coast fruit, Clarence, an arrogant, stocky man, built like an ex-middleweight boxer— offered a reward to anyone who eliminated Malcolm. While he was in New York, he met with Leon Amir. The two knew each other well because Clarence had been assigned as Muhammad Ali's bodyguard and Leon worked as the champ's press secretary. According to Leon, Clarence revealed a 38 caliber revolver that he intended to use on Malcolm and asked Leon if he could help locate a silencer. Stunned, Amir said that he did not know where Clarence could find one and began contemplating whether he should warn Malcolm. But Malcolm needed no warning. He already knew that his life was in danger. For his family's sake, he needed to get away from his assassins. Only Betty and a few trusted assistants knew that he planned to attend the second Organization of African Unity Conference in Cairo, tour Africa, and return in six weeks. On July 9th, when he boarded TWA Flight 700, bound for London, he felt a sense of relief that he had not experienced since he last visited Africa. Escaping abroad brought him peace, a peace that would prove hard to relinquish, even after a nearly 20-week hiatus from the troubles that followed him at home. In the months after Muhammad Ali's return from Africa, Elijah Muhammad forbade him from staying at the Hotel Teresa. In early July, when Ali appeared on a television show, Ladies of the Press, New York Amsterdam news writer Sarah Slack asked him if he and Malcolm had split. Cautiously, he explained that when the Honorable Elijah Muhammad cuts a man off, then he's automatically cut off from all of his followers. Curious, the reporter asked if the division between Elijah and Malcolm had led him to cancel his accommodations at the Teresa. Interrupting her, Ali said, My leader told me, uh, not my leader, but various officials said it would not be nice being in the same hotel he was in, and whatever they say goes. It was clear from Ali's statement that he no longer made his own decisions. The writers mostly asked him questions about political issues, the Nation of Islam, and the Civil Rights Movement. When one of the writers mistakenly called him Mr. Clay, he corrected her, reminding the panel that he had a new name. Appearing serious, Ali frequently referenced the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, just as Malcolm used to do. "'Our leader teaches us that we are a nation within a nation,' he maintained. Confused, the moderator asked him what he really meant. Ali explained that America did not belong to the black man. The fact that whites constantly attacked blacks proved it. When the moderator asked him if he considered himself an American first and foremost— Ali definitively answered, No, sir. No, sir. Proud to say no. First, I'm a black man. I'm an Afro-American. When the moderator pressed him again, Ali insisted, Well, I'm not no American. I'm a black man. After Ali returned from Africa, reporters and businessmen learned that if they wanted to meet with him privately, they had to see Herbert Muhammad. Herbert controlled everything. Following his father's orders, he began promoting Ali as a righteous and devoted follower of the messenger, turning Muhammad Speaks into a photo album of the heavyweight champion. Inside the nation's newspaper, readers found pictures of Ali learning from Elijah, meeting Nkrumah, shaking hands with Nasser, and playing with black children. Herbert also created opportunities for the nation to profit from Ali's likeness. For only two dollars, kids could join the Muhammad Ali International Fan Club and receive a personally autographed photo of the champ, wallet-sized membership card, membership button, and newsletter. As a famous black athlete, Ali proved invaluable to the nation of Islam. Jeremiah X recalled, people wanted to hear what he had to say, so his visibility and prominence were of great benefit to the nation. His voice carried throughout the world, and that was a true blessing for us. Ali's appearances at Muslim rallies, even the possibility that he might appear, enticed blacks to attend the nation's meetings. There's no doubt, Jeremiah said, our following increased enormously, maybe a hundred percent, after he joined the nation. When he went to a temple, there were overflowing crowds. With Malcolm out of the picture, Ali became the nation's most visible symbol of redemption. Like Malcolm once did, he exaggerated how the nation's moral code transformed him, crediting Elijah Muhammad for purifying his soul. "'Well, before I became a Muslim, I used to drink,' he said, disingenuously. "'Yes, I did. The truth is the truth. And after I fought and beat somebody, I didn't hardly go anywhere without two big, pretty women beside me.' People would be stunned to learn how much he had changed after becoming a Muslim, he said. Being a Muslim gave him the strength to resist sinful temptations, especially with so many women throwing themselves at him. All types of women, white women too, make passes at me. Girls find out where I live and knock at the door at one and two in the morning. They send me their pictures and phone numbers, saying, Please, just telephone me. A few weeks after Ali returned from Africa, Herbert introduced him to Sanji Roy, a beautiful cocktail waitress who spent her evenings socializing at Chicago nightclubs. During the daytime, she answered phones for Herbert at the office of Mohammed Speaks, and occasionally posed for pictures at his photography studio. She had lived a hard life, losing both parents before she was nine years old. When she was a teenager, Sanji became pregnant, dropped out of school and began working to support her baby. On the night she met Ali, he asked her to marry him. Stunned at his proposal, Herbert warned him that he was making a terrible mistake. Ali did not realize that Herbert had arranged for him to meet Sanji, only for a night of fun. Herbert simply wanted her to show the champ a good time. "'Man, you don't marry this girl,' he said. "'She works at a cocktail place, wearing one of those little bunny things on her behind.' You don't marry no girl like this. The Louisville sponsoring group had reached the same conclusion. When they discovered that Ali had become involved with Sanji, they conducted their own investigation and compiled a dossier. They discovered police reports, charging her with solicitation. Although the group followed a policy of never interfering with Ali's personal life, they harbored deep reservations about his relationship with Sanji, doubting the wisdom of his marrying her. But Ali did not care that she was not a Muslim. He wanted her, and that's all that mattered. On August 14th, 41 days after they met, Ali and Sonji wed in a private ceremony in Gary, Indiana. He made it clear that he expected her to be a submissive wife who obeyed his rules and the nation's. The only reason he married her, he said later, was because she agreed to do everything that I wanted her to do. He told her that she could no longer wear makeup or short skirts. She had to quit drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, and eating pork. Sonji complied, accepting the nation's religious code. When they were alone, Ali revealed his affectionate side, singing her love songs and blowing her kisses. Gradually, though, friction developed between them. When Ali explained that they could not buy a house, because the mothership would arrive in three years and take them away, she asked him why, then, did Elijah Muhammad live in a mansion? Ali objected to her questioning him and Elijah. "'Woman,' he scolded her, "'you're too wise. Don't be asking them questions.' As time went on, Sanji noticed that when the Muslims were around, Ali became more controlling. When nobody was around, he'd want one thing from me, and then in public, it was another. I couldn't understand his two faces. Too often, she said later, the Muslims interfered with their marriage. They wanted to control his entire life. Being the wife of the Muslim champ became an isolating experience, especially after they began renting an apartment in Chicago to be closer to the nation's headquarters. When she wanted to eat at a restaurant, he took her to the Muslims' luncheonette. When she wanted to go shopping, they visited the Muslims' department store. When she wanted to see her old friends, he said that she had all the friends she ever needed at the mosque. And when she thought it would be a good idea to do interviews, he reminded her that she could not speak to reporters unless Herbert had sent them from Muhammad Speaks. Not even the best investigative reporters knew much about her. When Myron Cope asked if he could interview Sanji, Ali replied that he had to make a phone call and see if they'll give me permission. The following day, Ali told Cope that Sanji could not talk to him because they had denied the request. They said it was time for Ali to quit messing around with Sanji and get back in the ring. In the six months since he last fought, Ali had hardly trained and had gained nearly thirty pounds. In mid September, after he signed a contract for a rematch against Liston that would take place at the Boston Garden, Angelo Dundee urged him to get back to work. The trainer worried that the champ was losing interest in fighting. The problem, Dundee discerned, was that Ali knew that he would fight Sonny again, but he no longer feared him. Yet, Ali still had something to prove against Liston. Most observers still believed that his last victory was a fluke, or worse, a fix. Some of his friends would not admit it publicly, but even they questioned whether he could beat Sonny again. After all, Ali didn't knock Liston out, and many people still wondered how he had won the fight after being temporarily blinded. When Sonny refused to rise from his stool, Ferdy Pacheco said, it tarnished the victory. It seemed almost too easy, like Liston had handed him the title." All you knew for sure, somehow, was that this kid had survived, Pacheco reflected. There was some doubt. Ali didn't quite remember it that way. In his mind, there had never been any doubt that he would defeat Sonny Liston. In Miami, when he was not training at the Fifth Street Gym, he liked to replay the fight film, reliving his moment of glory round by round, blow by blow. Studying the film, he recognized that he was too fast for Sonny. He could see that Liston had become slow and predictable, planting himself before he threw a punch. Liston could only hit a man who moved forward, but Ali dodged his punches, bouncing forward and backward and side to side. The film did not lie. Liston had become a shell of himself, a shadow on the wall, bleeding, tired, suddenly aged. An imposter. When Ali was not training, Myron Cope followed him around Miami. Since he last wrote a profile of him in 1962, Cope learned, the boxer's innocence had faded as he was hardened over time by the pressures of fame and politics. Two years after their first meeting, the Muslim champ sounded more like an evangelical preacher at a tent meeting than a boxer. Convinced he is a beacon of righteousness in a wicked world. Looking back on his time with the young contender in 1962, Cope realized that even then, before any reporter knew that he had been attending the nation's meetings, the boxer hid a part of himself. At that time, Cassius Clay had schooled the writer about the dangers of pork without explaining that his dietary views came directly from the Muslims. Poke! 90% maggots! he had told Cope. Upon reflection, Cope realized that the boxer had a history of calculated deceptions, prompting sports writers to wonder who is the real Muhammad Ali? Harold Case of the Boston Globe asked Is Clay the fellow who boasts like a Viking when he has an audience, hurls venomous insults at Sonny Liston and Floyd Patterson, and makes listeners giggle with his silly little rhymes? Or, Case pondered, Is he the fellow who, when alone with a few friends, is quiet, serious, calculating, modest, and eminently sane? Observing Ali, one could hardly separate the man from the myth, the boxer from the actor, because he deliberately cultivated a dual identity. Although he displayed no genuine animosity toward individual whites, many writers painted him as a villainous automaton, filled with hatred. Ali's ties to the nation, Jimmy Cannon wrote, were the dirtiest in American sports since the Nazis were shilling for Max Schmeling as a representative of their vile theories of blood. Yet Ali was not the naive racist that Cannon made him out to be. His feelings toward whites were more complicated. He told Cope that whites who sacrificed their lives for colored people were not really devils. "'It's not the color that makes you a devil,' he said." just the deeds that you do. Many white writers, who had known him before he joined the nation, refused to believe that he wholly accepted the black Muslim's ideology. He may have preached separatism, but he did not articulate a sophisticated view beyond that basic principle. People seemed to believe this man was a threat to America's values because of his affiliation with the Muslims, which was seen as a racist organization, George Plimpton observed, What they didn't seem to realize is that Ali himself wasn't going around calling whites devils. He seemed to have a mind of his own on that matter. Jerry Eisenberg suggested that Ali performed for everyone, including the black Muslims. He'd be talking with you about something, and one of the Muslims would come into the room, and the conversation would change completely. Ali would do anything to please Elijah Muhammad— and gained the approval of the Muslim officials around him. He wanted desperately to be taken seriously, to be respected, and told that he was special. Ali sounded sincere when he talked about Malcolm X. Probing for answers about their relationship, Cope asked Ali about their time together in Miami on the eve of the Liston fight. Irritated, Ali snapped, I didn't invite him down here. He came down here on his own. He's nothing now. Under Elijah's trance, Ali assaulted Malcolm's character. Taking the well-worn Muslim line, Ali said, Our teacher took him off the streets, a jailbird, a hoodlum, and it was Elijah Muhammad's teachings that made him able to go on any TV. But he failed. Who is he going to represent now? Listening to him fume, there was no doubt that Ali had buried Malcolm, somewhere in Africa. After Ali was called back from Africa, he adopted a new role as the noble warrior, a Muslim mercenary defending Allah's messenger. Whenever reporters asked him about Malcolm, Ali erupted into a scornful harangue against that chief hypocrite. Out of the war between Elijah and Malcolm emerged the ugly period of Ali's life, a viciousness aimed at anyone who opposed the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. In his zealousness, Ali believed that Malcolm had crossed the messenger of Almighty God. And that, he prophesied, would prove a grave mistake. Mr. Muhammad will destroy him through Allah. You just don't buck Mr. Mohammed, and get away with it. By the time he arrived in Boston, Muhammad Ali looked like a new man. The champ had shed the excess weight around his stomach and looked stronger, broader, and more toned. His biceps measured seventeen inches around, and his thighs twenty-seven inches, both two inches larger than before the Miami fight, though his waist remained the same size, a svelte thirty-four inches. He'd never felt better. Standing in front of a department store mirror, admiring his physique, he declared, "'I'm so beautiful, I should be chiseled in gold. Look at that build. It's pretty. I mean, it's ready to dance. Right now!' On Thursday, November 12th, for more than an hour, he danced around the ring, jumped rope, and hit the speed bag at the Boston Arena Annex. When he finished working out, he showered, while Clarence X and a few other large men abruptly ordered his fans to leave. A few minutes later, the champ reappeared for his daily news conference. Ali sat on the wooden stands, flanked by two court jesters, Bundini Brown and Lincoln Perry, better known as Stepin Fetchit, the first black movie star of the 1920s and 1930s. No one really knows how Fetchit met the champ, but his presence in Ali's camp puzzled reporters. Once billed as the world's laziest man, the tall, lanky comic had created a minstrel caricature based on the worst stereotypes of black men as lazy, shiftless, and ignorant writers could not comprehend how Ali, the embodiment of racial pride, could ever befriend an actor who denigrated blacks with his performances. It would be difficult to find a more incongruous situation than the clay Fetchit Association, one writer suggested. The world's perhaps most famous and most arrogant Negro, Cassius Clay, has among his entourage, the Negro who probably has done more than any man to label his race, with all things, Clay isn't. Ali didn't see any problem having Fetchit around him. In some ways, he could relate to the aging actor. For years, most Americans perceived Lincoln Perry and Stepan Fetchit the character as one and the same, much the way people viewed Muhammad Ali and the Louisville Lip, an outrageous, loud-mouthed character. Sports writers and biographers have failed to recognize that Ali created the Louisville lip, not just for show business, but also to hide his emerging political defiance. Experts in subterfuge, both Ali and Fetchit, had mastered the game of putting on old massa, a shrewd masking tactic employed by slaves. In this tradition, Ali and Fetchit embodied the old folk tune sung by plantation slaves, got one mind for the white folks to see "'Nother, for what I know, is me.'" Fetchit understood that Ali's shrewdness confused people, but that was the way the champ had designed it. "'People don't understand the champ, but one of these days he'll be one of the country's greatest heroes,' he predicted. "'He's like one of those plays where a man is the villain in the first act and then turns out to be the hero in the last act. That's the way it'll be with the champ, and that's the way he wants it. Because it's better for the box office for people to misunderstand him than to understand him. The following evening, three days before the fight, Ali stretched out on his bed at the Sherry Biltmore Hotel while he watched Little Caesar on a 16-millimeter projector. After a five-mile run earlier that morning, he'd spent the day resting and visiting with friends in his sixth-floor suite. His brother Rahman, Captain Sam, and Bundini served his every need. Suddenly, around six-fifty, he became nauseous. Ali streaked toward the bathroom and began vomiting. "'Oh, something is awful wrong,' he groaned. "'You better do something.' "'I'll call a doctor so the press won't find out,' Rahman said. "'Damn the press! Get me to a hospital, man! I'm real sick!' Within minutes, paramedics placed Ali on a stretcher and rushed him to the emergency room. When the ambulance reached the hospital, a Boston Herald photographer attempted to snap a few pictures, but Captain Clarence and the fruit ran him off. ''Keep away!'' Lewis X shouted. Then the minister gave his lieutenant strict orders. ''Nobody goes through these doors. Somebody will get hurt if they try.'' At the hospital, doctors discovered that Ali had a swelling the size of an egg in his right bowel, in medical terms, an incarcerated hernia. Had Ali waited any longer to call an ambulance, the hernia would have killed him. After emergency surgery, the surgeon announced that Ali would be fine, but he would not be able to box for several months, delaying the fight. The black Muslims suspected foul play, theorizing that someone had poisoned the champ. Patrolling the fourth floor, the ex-boys, Leon, Sam, Louis, Otis, and Clarence, guarded his recovery room. Before the police arrived, Clarence stood on a chair, giving orders. Watching the brooding captain, Jimmy Cannon observed, there wasn't any doubt who was in charge. Devastated, Sonny Liston mixed a screwdriver when he heard the news. He really believed that he was in the best shape of his life. All those hours of training now meant nothing. He would have to wait months until Ali could fight— which meant that he would have to start training all over again. He had no idea if he would be able to train with the same focus and the same ferocity that he had built up on the eve of the fight. All he could do now was shake his head, muttering to himself, That damned fool! That damned fool! Then he took a long drink. On November 24th, Four days before Ali left the Boston City Hospital, Malcolm X returned to New York after spending nearly five months abroad. During his second tour of Africa, he'd met with several heads of state, dozens of ministers, and scores of cabinet members. Gradually, though, the trip had worn him down. Although African leaders welcomed him with open minds, open hearts, and open doors, he must have realized that some doors closed tightly when he left. While African leaders listened politely to his proposals, he learned that most could not risk losing American foreign aid by charging the United States with international crimes. In Ghana, his old friends Julian Mayfield, Leslie Lacey, and Maya Angelou could see his fears weighing on him. Suspicious and irritable, he was certain that someone was following him. He admitted that he had extended his trip abroad because there were men in Harlem waiting for him, willing to take his life for a dime. Malcolm knew that his time was up. Every day for nearly three months, he awoke wondering if this was the day that he would die. But dying did not scare him nearly as much as failing to help his people. He had so much work to do that hardly a night passed that he slept more than four hours— Late one evening in December, Malcolm called Claude Lewis, a reporter at the New York Post. Lewis could tell that something was wrong. Malcolm spoke with an urgency to get something on the record before it was too late. Shortly thereafter, they met at a crowded Harlem coffee shop on 135th Street. Malcolm insisted that they meet in public. Sitting in a booth with Malcolm's bodyguard, Lewis asked a range of questions about his image, his new organization, his evolving politics, and the threats on his life. Listening to the fragile minister, Lewis sensed his vulnerability, that at any moment he might crack. The reporter waited to hear the old Malcolm, the fiery minister, bursting with rage and wrath. But the flame had burned out. The Malcolm he met that day looked exhausted and unraveled, beset with trepidation. Wondering how he would survive, Lewis asked about his future. Where was he headed? I have no idea, he repeated. I have no idea. All he knew was that he was for the freedom of the 22 million Afro-Americans by any means necessary. In the past, Malcolm had spoken in absolutes. Everything was black and white. Now, he lived in a world of greys. "'He remained open to anything that would bring freedom to black Americans. "'I'm headed in any direction that will bring us some immediate results.' "'By any means necessary.' "'Those words were not just a slogan or an ideology. "'They conveyed the mentality of a man pushed to the edge, "'desperate for survival. "'Whatever I say, I'm justified,' he told Lewis.' If I say the Negroes should get out of here right tomorrow and go to war, I'm justified. Really? It might sound extreme, but you can't say it's not justified. Speaking like a soldier on the front lines, he insisted, If I say right now that we should go down and shoot fifteen Ku Klux Klansmen in the morning, you may well say that's insane, but you can't say I'm not justified. Near the end of their interview. Malcolm talked about death. "'I'll never get old,' he said. Lewis asked him why. "'Well,' he explained, "'I'll tell you what I mean and why I say that. "'When I say, by any means necessary, "'I mean it with all my heart and my mind and my soul. "'A black man,' he said, "'should be willing to sacrifice his own life for freedom. "'And he should also be willing to take the life "'of those who want to take his.' It's reciprocal. When you really think like that, you don't have long to live.
0: Context of white supremacy. That will do it for this week, and we will start there next week to end the book. We'll be picking up on Chapter 17 for our last session next Friday. Context of white supremacy. The number again, 641 715 Four zero the code is five six, four nine four three pound, press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us if you have commentary, particularly if you did not get to share during our first exchange, you should get your hand up immediately. Do not wait until the last minute. We have a little less than thirty minutes to go. Uh, Thomas in New York. Mr. Demery, four, Raj, you are all with us? I'll look for other hands as I see them. Uh, feel free if you have commentary. Yes,
5: man, be heard. Yes, sir. Okay, like I like I said earlier, it it looks as though they're uh, continuously building up this little plot, it's it's almost like if you didn't understand the system of white supremacy, you would almost start to hate Elijah Muhammad more than you do the white people and the oppressors, the one who's really in charge of pulling all these strings and making all this stuff happen. Um. Uh, <clears throat> A lot of this stuff they got from FBI files, you know, could have went either way. Um, it's funny that it's been decades since uh uh Malcolm X was assassinated and it's been thousands of uh conspiracies and theories and uh, suggestions but they're supposed to have the only real uh, uh situation or scenario that actually happened because they got all these uh tidbits in there that do shed uh some light but it looks like some of the text, like when he say by any means necessary, they're turning that phrase uh sort of mockingly back at Malcolm X. You know, and uh what puzzles me is you know, if all Malcolm did was to confront Elijah Muhammad with some improprieties, you know and um, but did not behave in the manner he wanted him to while he was suspended, how is any of that worthy of death? I don't see it. I'm not convinced that they um Uh, Elijah Muhammad and the rest of the NOI, you know, without some type of manipulation or some type of coercion from uh, the State Department, FBI, CIA, you know, uh, that they would carry this out. It just don't seem like that big of an offense to me. But I'll mute my line
6: and let someone else have a chance. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, to um, piggyback off of what Mister Jimmy was just saying, uh, it would be impossible with all these FBI tapes for them not to. Even if it was the Nation of Islam that killed him, they would have. I mean, endless tapes of they probably have it all on camera. I mean, he was so so watched. Even when he left the country, I mean, it shows how much how much surveillance um, he was under. And if he was watched this much, I mean, could you imagine Ron with king? My, I mean, that would have just the footage and things they have on him has to be extensive. I, I just no way that they don't, they can't release what really happened. If they didn't do it, I'm quite sure, knowing white people, they would have released that they had un, unscrupulous information to prove that the NOI did it. So that just leads me to know that. They had a hand in it, the CIA or the FBI. Today, um, this um, these authors, I mean, I I, I don't have the book, and um, I don't know how much of this is their quotes and not their quotes, so I can't really um, comment on it from that perspective. But, um, I mean, they said that he's under Elijah's trance, talking about um, uh, Muhammad Ali. I mean. It didn't seem like he was under a trance. It seemed like he codified his behavior. Uh, he got married. He settled down. Uh, he moves to uh all black city like Chicago. I mean, um, uh, a very prominent black city like Chicago. He eats with the Muslim people. He goes to their restaurants. He goes to their department store. He's not wasting his money. Um, I'm not too sure about the mothership. In three years, I never heard him say that, but I do know that was a part of the doctrine at one point in the Nation of Islam. But they made him seem like he was a mindless clone. Like, um, you know, he was uh, really, I think he was as enlightened by the information he was getting, the freedom of consciousness that enters you, that you feel like you know, you know, you know something's not right, and you can kind of put a finger on it. And you start to talk different. You start to act different. Um, I don't think he was um, just a, a clone. He's a member of an organization. He's the front person. He did what a front person is supposed to do. He did what what Malcolm did. Um, that's how it works. How um, dare white people label any black organization as racist? Um, I, they they label the Nation of Islam as a racist, separatist group. And, um, it's, if anything, they should label it as a counter racist group. Um, it's not, it's not, it has no power. They can't go do anything to white people. White people, uh, have them under so much surveillance. I mean, they, this is, they, they're surveilling them bad and they surveil the mob. And, um, I just don't see how, how they're writing it from this perspective kind of gives you the illusion like this group had some type of, um, but like this who was the mob. I mean, he's he's putting out a hit and it it's just I just don't like how the 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 perspective they're writing it from. And I mean my line of the other people go thinking, Gus.
7: Oh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. I uh, guess um man, these horses are a real trip, just to say the least. But I'll start on two sixty eight. There's a section um where they wrote, um, after Malcolm left the nation, though he remained loyal to Elijah Muhammad and John Ali, gave him direct orders to keep an eye on a heavyweight champion. But when he heard, when he heard the messenger's son talk at the armory, he began questioning his decision. Elijah Jr. spoke with a viciousness that troubled him. Malcolm was a red, no good dog, a hypocrite who deserved to die. If we decide to kill Malcolm, he said, no one can help him. Consumed with rage, Elijah's son berated the New York fruit for failing to execute him. Malcolm should have been killed by now. If Malcolm refused to leave the queen's home deeded to the nation, then they would make him leave. All you have to do is go there and clap on the walls until the walls come down and then cut the nigger's tongue out, put it in an envelope and send it to me. And I will stamp it approved and give it to the messenger. When the author read that section and when he read the section on the following page where it discusses, um, uh, Elijah Muhammad's grandson Hassan uh berating him essentially and and spewing vitriol about his grandfather. Um I thought that the venom with which that right white narrator spoke was just palpable. Um I noticed that when he's reading things that are anti black, especially when they're focused specifically <clears throat> excuse me, on Malcolm Malcolm Mr. Uh, Malcolm uh Muhammad Ali and Elijah Muhammad specifically that he reads in different tones, and those tones are almost violent. Um, It makes his racism stand out, and the racism of these writers stand out very, very much for me. Um, Also, oh, I thought they were practicing some real incredible racism on the following page 270 that they wrote. Malcolm needed no warning. He already knew that his life was in danger. For his family's sake, he needed to get away from his assassins. Only Betty and a few trusted assistants, assistants knew that he planned to attend the second Organization of African Unity Conference in Cairo, tour Africa, and return in six weeks. On July 9th, when he boarded the TWA Flight 700 bound for London, he felt a sense of relief that he had not experienced since he last visited Africa. Escaping abroad brought him a peace, a peace that would prove hard to relinquish, even after nearly a 20-week hiatus from the troubles that followed him at home. Now, I felt that the author was practicing racism here because, uh, yeah, when they wrote the the sentence, they said, um, for his family's sake, he needed to get away from his assassins. Um, just the, the term that he needed to get away from his assassins made it seem like, um, he was running, but yet. A few pages later, I I think they said one of the most important sentences they wrote in the entire book in reference to Mr. Malcolm X. And this was on page 279 where they wrote, uh, Malcolm knew that his time was up. Every day for nearly three months, he he awoke wondering if this was the day that he would die. But dying did not scare him nearly as much as failing to help his people. That is the truest statement that they said about Malcolm in the entire book. So when you juxtapose that statement with them indicating as if he was running for for his life um, to get away from his assassins, not saying that he didn't want to be a father and take care of his family, but obviously just like his wife that he knew, his children knew, and all of those who were close to him knew that he loved his people so much that that was the most important thing on his agenda. And um, his family as a family collectively helped to facilitate everything that he, he had tried to accomplish even though they lived in a state of poverty due to, to um Malcolm basically wanting to divest from his former life as Detroit Red. So I just found that to be very telling act of racism, um, by these white authors. Also, um on page 272, they write, the Louisville sponsoring group had reached the same conclusion. When they discovered Ali had become involved with Sanji, they conducted their own investigation and compiled the dossier. They discovered police reports charging her with solicitation. Although the group followed a policy of never interfering with Ali's personal life, they harbored deep reservations about his relationship with Sanji, doubting the wisdom of his marrying her. And I wanted to ask you, thus if the Louisville sponsoring group was a group of white people with... with, with do you know what they were? Because I find that their tactics was similar to the FBI and the CIA compiling dossiers on people. So I just wanted to ask you if you knew anything about that.
0: I think they have photographs of the people in that organization. Uh, from my understanding, these are like powerful whites uh, who had uh, financial resources to support. Uh, Muhammad Ali, I think there might even be some images of, of this group online. If there are, I'll post them on the Facebook group. But to my understanding, yeah, these are these are exclusively uh, powerful white men uh, in Kentucky, Louisville specifically. So,
7: thank you for that, because it just goes to show, again, something we talk about on workplace racism, the fact that they study us. And, I mean, think about it. They're not FBI, CIA. They're just powerful whites who can compile a dossier on somebody. So, I mean, it just goes to show how they work together who uh facilitate the destruction of obviously a black marriage granted you know someone not say she's the best person to marry based on whatever information they're compiling if it's all true but the bottom line is again just to destroy his marriage they compile the dossier i find that telling um on page 277 they write a a brief sentence that I think kind of speaks to what I discussed about the double consciousness, um, that W.E.B. Du Bois has talked about. Um, it says in this tradition, Ali and Fetcher embodied the old folk tune sung by plantation slaves got one mind for the white folks to see another for what I know is me. And that's what I, that's what I was, uh, basically alluding to. So I think that that was a simple but profound, uh, way of, uh, talking about that point. Um, and I thought it was a a standout line that they wrote there. Um, also. Oh yes. Um, oh, okay. So they said here, um, on page 279, listening to the fragile minister, Lewis sensed his vulnerability that at any moment he might crack. The reporter waited to hear the old Malcolm, the fiery minister bursting with rage and wrath, but the flame had burned out. Malcolm. The Malcolm he met that day looked exhausted and unraveled, beset with trepidation, wondering how he would survive. Lewis asked about his future. Where was he headed? I have no idea, he repeated. I have no idea. All he knew was that he was for the freedom of the 22 million Afro-Americans by any means necessary. In the past, Malcolm had spoken in absolutes. Everything was black and white. Now he lived in a world of grays. He remained open to anything that would bring freedom to black Americans. I'm headed in any direction that would bring us some immediate... Every single program. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. And I love that man. And um, this section just outlines just how much pressure he was under. And all I can think of is regardless of what was happening to this man, all he cared about was replacing white supremacy with justice and freeing his people. Thank you. And I will meet my line.
0: As I stated, um, there are photographs of the Louisville sponsoring group online. Uh, Specifically, there's an article at Sports Illustrated uh, titled The Eleven Men Behind Cassius Clay, where they have a photograph of Muhammad Ali. He's in his boxing attire, uh, no shirt on, and then all of these uh, white men in their uh, business attire, uh, very akin to... Uh, the formal plantation era of white supremacy uh, as though they're examining uh, some buck Nigra that's going to be sold uh, but they do have all of these individuals uh, named Uh, it's not that long it's long enough that i'm not going to read it here but uh, it's not that long if you want to read it i'll post it uh, on my facebook page uh, tweet it out if you're interested but the concluding paragraph i think gives you uh, everything you need to know about these white men I say, let me give you the official line. Volunteers, a man who wants to remain in the shadows. We are behind Cassius Clay to improve the breed of boxing. Interesting word use. To do something nice for a deserving, well-behaved Louisville boy. And finally, to save him from the jaws of the hoodlum jackals. I don't know who composed that. Maybe the executive committee, but I think it's beautiful. I think it's 50% true, but also 50% hokum. What I do... What I want to do, like a few others, is to make a bundle of money. Why do you know a Clay Liston fight might gross the winner's share of $3 million? Split that up and it comes out to $1.5 million for Cassius and $1.5 million for the syndicate. Best of all, it comes out to $150,000 for me. And that is the end of the report. Not only do they call him a boy, they reference him by his... First name uh, and even breed of boxing uh, very much to me going back to the same type of way that black people were talked about during chattel slavery era of racism, white supremacy, breeding negros uh, and eugenics. But at any rate, I'll post it if you all are interested. And this to date, it is from uh, March 11, 1963. Uh, So this is, mm, I don't know, seven, eight months before the uh, Liston fight when he won the, the first time they fought when he won the championship. Anyway, uh, some of the things that uh, stood out from the second chapter. Oh, before I even get to that, uh, I tracked down the book that I referenced uh, in, during the first audio segment. Uh, so the book is "Globe Trotting: African-American Athletes and Cold War Politics. Uh, and this is uh, written by Damien L. Thomas. Uh this is a black male author and professor. Interestingly, one of the co authors of the book we are reading right now, Randy Roberts, uh he is the editor uh of this this is a series of books uh that was published by the same company on uh sports and race. Uh, but Randy Roberts was the editor in this series of books. I don't know how involved he was in the editing of this particular book, globetrotting. Uh, but some of the chapters from the book, uh, the showcase African American, Paul Robeson, Jackie Robinson, and the politics of cold war prosperity and repression. Um, the second chapter spreading the gospel of basketball, the Harlem globetrotters, the state department and the minstrel tradition. Uh, and then the final chapter is black power, international politics, and the revolt of the black athlete. I am certain Muhammad Ali is in that chapter as well as Dr. John Carlos, who we played the segment from a uh, week or two, week or two ago on the compensatory call in. He was at the 68 Olympics in Mexico city. He did the, what they call black power salute on the metal stand. He and uh, Tommy Smith. All right. Um, Back to notes that I took from uh, the second portion of the audio clip. Um, I thought the section where it said with Malcolm out of the picture, Ali became the nation's most visible symbol of redemption. Like Malcolm once did, he exaggerated how the nation's moral code transformed him. Uh, I thought that was a subtle form of racism uh, on the part of the authors, uh, regardless of what your assessment is of the nation of Islam. Uh, I think it is accurate and verifiable that there are many, 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 many black people uh, who became affiliated with that organization. And there's no exaggeration. They did uh, transform their conduct, their behavior. There was a massive improvement just based on their connection, their association uh, to the nation of Islam. I do not think that's an exaggeration. And I just, to me, it just seems more of that pattern, not just within this book, but in general of just consistently minimizing, devaluing, undermining the achievements, efforts of any and all black people who are trying, uh, in their response to racism, white supremacy, to do something constructive. Um, mentioning the Louisville, uh, sponsoring group, uh, I thought that was great in terms of in them investigating and having the resources to investigate people that are associated uh, with their boy uh, Cassius, since they're calling him on a first name basis, uh, having that ability. Uh, and I just don't see those type of resources with uh, other uh, black organizations uh, even in 2016 to carry out some extensive investigation of, you know, who is this person? Who is that person? Who are you involved with type of a thing? Um, even the, section that I listed with the Louisville sponsoring group where it says, uh, they had reached the same conclusion when they discovered that Ali had become involved with Sanji. They conducted their own investigation and compiled a dossier. They discovered the police reports charging her and, and all of that to get into his personal, uh, affairs, uh, his sexual arrangements. Again, white people, they are not ignorant about racism, white supremacy. They are devoted to studying black people. Um, also thought, uh, where they said, uh, Upon reflection, Cope realized the boxer had a history of calculated deceptions. And now this time, this is in quotes, right? So with this time when they uh, have the word uh, deception, it's not the author's word. Uh, they are quoting uh, Myron Cope, uh, who is a journalist who is writing, uh, I guess at this time, about uh Muhammad Ali's fights and and what have you. So he's saying that it's deceptive. But in my opinion, as I've stated before, when you go back and you quote these people, uh, contemporaries of that time, when you quote them, and they're making statements that I view to be racist and fit a long tradition of uh, racist practices of classifying black people as being somehow deceptive, uh, dishonest, lying. uh, And you don't indict that. You don't call that out and you're putting it in. Uh in my view, you are just reaffirming the racism of fifty years ago or however long ago uh it is and I, even beyond that in this book, they are using that exact term deception or terms very similar to it in their own words repeatedly to describe both Muhammad Ali and malcolm x um also thought it continuing in that same paragraph always uh, says uh is Clay the fe- now? This is in quotes. Is Clay the fellow who boasts like a Viking when he has an audience? Hurls venomous insults at Sonny Liston and Floyd Patterson and makes listeners giggle with his silly little rhymes. Not as though they really care that you know a black person is insulting uh, another black person. We don't really care. We don't like any of these negros. Uh It's you know just going to see black people bruise and batter each other. We'll root for Sonny Liston if we dislike. Muhammad or Cassius Clay at the time. We dislike him more because of what he said, his association with the nation of Islam will root for sunny listed, but he's a nigger too. We don't like him and we're controlling all of them, whether it's the, uh, formally named gangsters that are controlling Sonny Liston or the folks who should also be recognized as gangsters, the Louisville sponsoring group or the FBI, the CIA, you don't get any bigger in terms of gangsters uh, than that in terms of how they function on the planet. The system of racism, white supremacy is a gang in and of itself. So, I mean, just the mockery of them acting as though there's some moral interest in Cassius Clay, insulting Floyd Patterson and hurling these insults. and Oh, what a disgrace. Um, Moving forward, I too, I think Thomas in New York pointed it out uh, where, and this is not in quotes, this is the author's words uh, that Muhammad Ali well, yeah, Muhammad Ali, uh, is under Elijah's trance uh, when he assaulted Malcolm's uh, character and uh, saying all these bad things about him. Uh, I just, just the use of that term, it seems to fit that pattern. Even the way that I've heard whites talk about Colin Kaepernick over the past week, I heard uh, some whites whites on sports talk radio saying that Colin Kaepernick is just some uh, big dummy And his uh, spouse, his female partner, that she filled his empty skull with all this rhetoric about Black Lives Matter and racism and you need to stand up. It's the same type of thing that regardless of who it is, that the black person, if they're saying something, doing something about racism, uh, that they are an idiot and they are so mentally unfit and defective uh, that somebody must be putting these ideas in their tiny Negro pecan sized brain. Uh, for them to be doing these things, that's just the way that it reeks to me, uh, even though and I and I mean, I don't know if they're going to cover that or not, but I do know uh, it was brought up at uh, the memorial when Muhammad Ali transitioned, brought up no less by Malcolm X's offspring. I think I played that clip at the uh, beginning of Tala uh, Shabazz, where she said that, you know, he regretted he apologized uh for his role and things that he said disparaging things about minister malcolm and not being able to repair that before minister malcolm's uh assassination in in 65 uh just in my view i don't think it would be correct uh to just say oh he's just some trance like puppet uh the the dummy in the vitriloquist act if you will just going out and uh spewing whatever rhetoric uh elijah muhammad or anybody else with the noi has has placed in his head Um, let's see just the way in, in my view it comes through repeatedly in the book it's in the photograph I referenced with the Louisville sponsoring group the section where it says Muhammad Ali looked like a new man the champ had shed the excess weight around his stomach and looked stronger broader and more toned his biceps measured 17 inches around and his thighs 27 inches both two inches larger than before the Miami fight just to me that detailed description of the black body sounding very much as though we're talking about an animal or a slave to be purchased. Uh, I think a lot of people have drawn those same comparisons, not just uh, with prize fighting, but athletics uh, in general uh, and the way the really grotesque and disparaging way that Serena Williams uh, has talked about the way that Gabrielle Douglas was talked about both in 2012 and in the London Olympics and in, uh, in Rio uh, with her hair and everything else being so uh, scrutinized in such a really uh, disparaging manner uh, that this is just uh, consistent uh, and just this obsessive uh, compulsion with the black body. I was even reminded of the white guest that we had on the program talking about uh, fantasy football and you get the same type of dissection uh, of black bodies and how big the person is and are they going to be able to get out there and do this with the ball and do that with the ball and do i want to buy them to have them on on our team you just see the same racist lens uh in which how whites perceive talk about think about black people the black body um let's see Mm -mm -mm. the way that uh bundini brown and lincoln perry uh who's better known as step and fetch it the way that they have described uh, as jesters by these white authors that also seem just, in my view, like an act of racism, white supremacy. I think it's pretty well documented uh, in terms of step and fetch it. That's you know, a whole nother body of scholarship that certainly people have talked a lot about. Um uh, Brown, well-known member of uh, Muhammad Ali's camp for the duration of his career. Uh, but again, the system of white supremacy is the reason why you have a step and fetch it to begin with. Uh, that series, that show would not exist if you did not have a system of racism. White supremacy would they dictate if you want to be a star, if you want to make a few nickels, uh, if we allow you to be on television, this is what you'll have to do. If you even want to put it in the contemporary context, uh, they would not allow Nat King Cole, who was not a clown, who was not a buffoon, who was the very essence of class. Dignity. They didn't want him to have a television show where he could come out in his suit, not giggling and being a clown, but being just an incredible singer, uh, piano player. Just as I said, just the very definition. If you look in the dictionary, uh, the term dignity picture of Nat King Cole. They didn't want that broadcast. They would uh, put makeup on him so he wouldn't appear to be a highly melanated, accomplished black male entertainer. Uh, And they have documented footage of this. And then they canceled the show just because they didn't want that sort of projection of a black male. No, we want you all to look like clowns and buffoons and get up there and be stupid and lazy and shiftless. That's the image that we want to project to the world. And you see, you see that even today, uh, 2016. So it would not be an indictment of Uh, I don't even want to say step and fetch it. Uh, It would not be an indictment of Lincoln Perry. The indictment would be of racists for mandating, demanding that you have black people play the role of a step and fetch it. Um, uh, And I think even he had seemed he had some understanding that that was what was uh, taking place and things that you uh, have to do in order to survive in a system of, of racism, white terrorism. Also, I guess this will be the last thing I get in where it says uh, when they're talking about the stomach ailment, Uh, that postponed the second fight between uh, Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston. Uh, Black Muslims suspected foul play, theorizing that someone had poisoned the champ patrolling the fourth floor. The ex-boys, Leon, Sam, uh, Lewis, Otis, and Clarence guarded his recovery room. Now, they do have the ex-boys in quotes, but again, as I've stated before, that's one of the ways I think that uh, racist writers can distance themselves. They can include a quote from someone else where they are referring to black people again as boys or referring to them on a first name basis or referring to them as being deceptive liars, whatever it is. You can put that in quotes and you just slide it in. Well, it's not that we said this. This is what was said in the report. But again, as I've stated, if you do not point that out uh, since you're writing this, this is your interpretation. You could take one, two sentences. It wouldn't have to be a whole lot to indict that. You know, this is racist language. We the authors, we think that this is racist language uh, that was used at the time or to give some analysis of that. Uh, type of verbiage being used to describe these black people if you don't do that in my view you are stamping your approval and just reaffirming their racist perception of these black people and I think that's happened a lot uh, throughout this text even though a lot of times there are no quotes the authors are just writing you know they're just doing the same thing just sometimes they do manage to slip a quote in of somebody else's words Um, I will I had a few I had a few others, but I will stop there. We did our we did our three hours. Uh anybody need a, a sentence like something you can do in, in thirty seconds or less or folks satisfied? Folks are good? Grand. We will wrap things up next week. Uh final session again. Uh next book should be The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Not next week, it would be two weeks from today. We'd be starting Sam Greenlee's The Spook Who Sat by the Door. If anyone would like to narrate, uh, feel free, drop us an email untiljustice at com, And uh, it would be cool if we could have one narrator do the whole thing. It's not that long. It's only about 250 pages, give or take. Uh, it's significantly shorter than this book, so we should not be on it very long. But let me know. No worries. Either way, we will make it happen. Uh, we will be here tomorrow, compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We'll catch up on What has transpired over the last seven days. Uh, Thanks for everyone tuning into the broadcast. Hope it was a constructive investment of your Friday evening. And we will be back in about 24 hours. Uh, Again, I know summer is winding down. This is holiday weekend, so they tell me. Still would be in effect. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. And as usual, you know there's going to be an increased presence of enforcement officials because it is a holiday weekend. Keep that in mind if you're out driving. You definitely do not want to be under the influence of anything. If you're going to be behind the wheel, I suspect that there will be sobriety checkpoints set up probably in areas where you have a lot of non white people. Keep that in mind and maybe share that with other folks that you come in contact with if you want to try to save them some. Uh, easily avoidable problems over the next probably 72 hours when all this wraps up. Anywho, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all soon. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person, it has been time replace white supremacy with justice. Immediately, cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed.
4: I'm a victim, your brother. Problem.
7: You're a
5: victim. I'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has
7: programmed my condition.